amplified. Because of the obvious threat to untold numbers of citizens, and because of the crisis which is even now developing, this radio station will remain on the air day and night. This station and hundreds of other radio and TV stations throughout this part of the country are pooling their resources through an emergency network hookup to keep you informed of all developments. Hi, and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 19, a themed episode, and we'll be talking about the siege narrative. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City. And my co-hosts tonight are... Dave Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh, also in Salt Lake City. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, the gang's all here again. I'm so happy. I feel like my kids are home for Thanksgiving. Just kidding. Josh, have you listened to episode 18 yet? I haven't. It's on my... Uh... It's on my travel playlist. I, I'm traveling all the time these days, and so I, I build up all the podcasts from when I'm on the road, and uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to let's give it a listen. I'm heading out to Boston tomorrow, or, uh, Saturday night. So, uh, Okay. Well, good. Well, this will be a little spoiler alert then, because um, you won't get the surprise of this, and Doc probably hasn't heard the episode, but <laughs> I did something kind of funny to our listeners at the end, oh, I saw that in the comments. I didn't hear. I didn't listen to the episode. And I'm kind of glad I I didn't hear that part. To be honest with you, I'm gonna give you a little sample right here. So at the end, um, Josh, Doc, and I are telling some creepy stories. So just be ready. And at one point, while we were recording it, uh, Doctor Shock was telling this dream, and it was very, it was very unsettling to me. And the way he was telling it. I thought he was going to get me with some kind of scary voice, <laughs> and he didn't, but I thought, you know, since our listeners are horror fans, I should try to scare them, too, because, I mean, after all, we are horror movie podcast, so here's a little clip to sample that. But I was looking around at different things, and I was wondering why I was there, and I saw this sort of demonic face looking at me from another room. Mm-hmm. And the two of us had sort of a conversation. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just plug that in on them. It's hilarious. Anyway. Wow. I hope the listeners appreciated that, but um, I had fun doing it. I'll just say that. So anyway. <laughs> That, that's just a little, I, I guess I put that in at the beginning of the show to tell people to make sure you listen to the very end because sometimes we have surprises like that. Speaking of surprises, you guys, I saw a tweet from at Jape Man that Horror Movie Podcast was recently nominated for the first Peabody film. Podbody. Sorry, thank you. The first Podbody film and TV podcasting awards. And I'll link it. Also and, a Peabody Award. I mean, we <clears throat> definitely deserve a Peabody Award. <laughs> that too as well. Yeah. Now, I'll link it in the show notes. But the Podbodies are a new award ceremony that focuses on film and TV podcasts. And for this first ceremony, they'll be giving a Lifetime Achievement Award to Bill Shetty. So congrats to Bill Shetty. Yes, definitely. Well deserved. And awesome. then in the category for Best Podcast Hosts, the group... 
um, nominated are Jay of the Dead, Wolfman Josh, and Dr. Shock from yeah. Horror Movie Podcast. Ooh. Nice. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love it. And then under the category for Best Podcast Guest, One Sick Puppy was nominated for his appearances on Horror Movie Podcast. Awesome. So congrats that's, to that's him. That's great. And then under the best podcast category, and by the way, this is the only category that will be voted on by the public and listeners, Horror Movie Podcast was nominated, and it's up against some pretty stiff competition, I have to say. Like, I saw Battleship Pretension in there, Film Junk, which is like the longest-running movie podcast, and even the Slash Filmcast, which is like one of my all-time favorite shows. So that's film junk's my jam. <laughs> that is your jam, huh? But uh, you know what? Uh, and Doc's friends over at row three, apparently, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were nominated as well. Yeah, so which is which is great. They're they're really great. Uh, they're great guys over there too. Those, and, those and are all girls. great podcasts. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So needless to say, we're honored and we're humbled. And even our sister site, Movie Podcast Weekly, is in the running against us. And by the way, just so you guys know, our co-hosts over there, particularly Carl, has been talking smack, saying he was going to get more votes for that show than for this show. So we'll see about that. So <laughs> the voting opens on June 29th, and we'll let you know about that in case you want to give us a vote. So we want to thank the Podbody Film and TV Podcasting Awards for the nomination. We're just tickled pink there. Now, we had a poll question in episode 18 there. And I just wanted to tell people this here. The, do you remember this uh, poll question? Did you see this, Josh, yet? Um, let's see. What was it? It was Dr. Shock asked whether horror movie podcasts should have special episodes every once in a while where we cover a different genre, such as oh, right. action yeah, movies. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so um, basically the results have come down to... Um, the yes categories add up to 47% and the no categories add up to 53%. And the category that won was no horror movies only on horror movie podcast, but I'd like to hear such episodes on movie podcast weekly. And so it seems like a great fit over there. And I just wondered, um, Dr. Shock, would you be willing to come up with the first episode idea? And then we could, Potentially record it as a bonus episode or a premium episode or something like that. Sure, I can I can give it some thought, yeah. absolutely. Okay, I'm really excited about that. So I wanted to thank everybody that voted on that. And um, Looks like second place was a yes answer, just for those people who were feeling dejected right yeah, now. Yeah, it was is- very, it was, it was really close. I mean, it, it, it was something that I thought that personally I was thinking if we were going to do it, it would have to sort of be, it, it couldn't just be like a, a slight majority. I would have thought it would have to be like an overwhelming right. before we'd uh, think about doing it. You know, with as close as it was, I figured it was something that, okay, it's just not going to work. Over it's not here. like you want to do a movie like The Sacrament on a horror movie. No, that's, that's just, what we're... Oh, right. Hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I was saying, you know, it's not like we were going to do like German family dramas or something like that. But, <laughs> but um, I was thinking like 80s action movies or, you know, post-apocalyptic or you know, something like that, that, that would still maybe not necessarily be horror, but would it be more like, like genre? Um, but apparently it's not something that, uh, you know, listeners here want, and I can understand that, yeah, which is, which is fine. Um, but yeah, we could do something like that over at movie podcast weekly. That'll, uh, that'll work. It's not, we didn't get the mandate like, like you and I did Josh for Godzilla. 
<laughs> right. But there are still 47% who are interested. So if you want to slip in your occasional, uh, as long as it's somewhat horror related, I think that would be, mm-hmm. that would still be somewhat representative of our listeners. Yeah, I think, uh, and I think I even saw a comment in there that if it's like part of the conversation, if it just sort of goes that way, then, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I think listeners would be more, uh, more forgiving. I definitely don't want to feel, I, I, there was a time when we were horror podcasting earlier on where I felt like, <laughs> nervous if I accidentally brought up a movie that wasn't a horror movie during our <laughs> conversation. So I don't want to fall into that trap again, but um, no, and we'll, I, I don't we'll, think we'll definitely do our best to keep it horror. Related. We'll do our best to keep it horror, but if it extends, you know, to, to other movies, if it just becomes like the natural progression of the discussion, then it, it would be, it, it would feel almost phony to, to stop it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. We all acknowledge that other types of movies do in fact exist. And, right. uh, Right. And are often interrelated, in fact. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks everybody who voted on that. And I'm I can't wait to hear what Doc's first theme is, and I think that'll be fun. So our agenda for this episode. First, Wolfman Josh and I are going to be bringing you our review of Willow Creek, the brand new Bigfoot movie by Bobcat Goldthwaite. And then we'll move into our themed episode where we'll examine the siege narrative by talking about Four films, Night of the Living Dead, Maximum Overdrive, Tremors, and The Mist. So without further delay, here's our feature review of Willow Creek. What do you want me to say? Just keep talking. I gotta adjust these levels. Check one. My boyfriend's a big idiot. Check one. Said that I I would come on this trip to help you with your film, and it's your birthday, and we're gonna have a great time. But I'm not about to say that I believe in Bigfoot. Hi, I'm in Willow Creek, Mecca to the Bigfoot community. He's all over the place. Oh, there he is. There is a thing we call the curse of Bigfoot. Your friends will all think you're crazy, and you'll spend all of your days searching for something that you never find. I think we're getting close. There's a lot of people back in these woods that just don't like other people in their business. Turn that thing off. Lucky for me, I know another way in. We're here. (laughs) (laughs) So Willow Creek is a film that premiered in festivals in 2013 and is now just hitting theaters and VOD. Um, It stars two relative unknown actors, Bryce Johnson and Alexi Gilmore, who have both worked with the director, Bobcat Goldthwaite in the past. Um, people will recognize Bobcat Goldthwaite from the eighties. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Police Academy movies and exactly. uh, hot to trot was one of my favorite where he talks to, he talks to a horse throughout the film. <laughs> um, but he's, you know, emerged as a pretty credible independent filmmaker. Um, I know Jason and I are both fans of, his last two films, at least. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, World's Greatest Dad and God mm-hmm. Bless America, right? Right. Not- and I, I wasn't a huge fan of the first movie. I thought it was a little on the trashy side, but I have been, uh, well, his first two movies, I guess. His first movie, I guess, was a horror movie. I don't really I don't really remember it at all or if I even saw it, but one of the first one I was really remember seeing was uh, Sleeping Dog Lies. Okay. Wow, I haven't seen that actually. What? What's uh, the that premise like? is a woman has. Uh, the, yeah, it's the. Um, <laughs> I 
it's a little raunchy. It's not really like it's not on screen raunch, but the premise in and of itself is oh. a little okay. Shocking. It's a little bestiality related. Exactly. But what was the horror? Well, supposedly, movie? Shakes the Clown has some horror in it. I've heard. Oh, really? Okay, so that's the one that you were saying. Okay. Um, I haven't seen that one, but I've just seen it referred to as, a, as I look it up on IMDb, it's actually here is categorized as a comedy and drama. So I don't know. I don't know what Shakes the Clown is, <laughs> but I've heard I've heard it referred to as a horror movie. Well, um, it looks horrifying on some yeah. levels, but but no, I, I mean, they're not horror movies, but um, God Bless America and World's Greatest Dad, I think, if you're a cinephile, I think people will appreciate that. And he's... I am so impressed with him as a director. I was impressed with him as a director. Oh, until now. I saw a movie called Willow Creek. (laughs) Are you serious? I am so surprised right now. I I really liked his last two movies. As as you said, they're very solid, independent films, both of which I think, you know, especially World's Greatest Dad, I feel like could have been a breakout success because Rob Williams is in it. Um, This film stars the two previously mentioned actors who he's worked with before who are on a little quest to find Bigfoot. So they go out into the woods and they go particular to this Willow Creek area of Northern California where the Patterson-Gimley film was shot, which is a famous Bigfoot Super 8 film, which most people have seen at one time or another, um, whether you know it or not. If If you can think of any... Bigfoot footage you may have seen. Um, this is the one where, you know, the Sasquatch looks over her shoulder and her she's got kind of got her arm swinging and she's walking through the creek bed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, one of the most iconic Bigfoot-related images, I'm sure, on the planet. Um, mm-hmm. It was shot by these two guys, Patterson and Gimlin, um, back in the late 60s. And ever since then, people have been trying to prove it false or prove it valid. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. and, and if, I think and most people, I think, just watching it are like, oh, that's a guy in a monkey suit. But but if the people who are really hardcore into Bigfoot um, point to many, many things about the film that are would be impossible to replicate with um, a simple costumes uh, even the highest level of special effects that were available right that day um would be you know in in fact um i thought i would just jump in here because the thing is uh, i used to be the guy who would watch this film and i'd be like oh that's freaky there's bigfoot right and then i heard so much about it over the years about how it was just a, a hoax and everything that i stopped believing it but then if you actually do some research on it. Like, if you merely read the Wikipedia page, that, I mean, I was sitting here, I have to admit, I was sitting here getting kind of freaked out, a little bit unsettled. <laughs> for example, let me read, um, just, just for fun here, a little bit from anthropologist, excuse me, <clears throat> a little bit from anthropologist Grover Krantz. He yeah. offered an in-depth examination of the Patterson film, and he concluded that it depicts a genuine, unknown creature. And his argument is based on detailed analysis of the figure's stride, center of gravity, and biomechanics. Okay? And it says, um, he argues that the creature's leg and foot motions are quite different from humans and could not have been duplicated by a person wearing a gorilla suit 
And then he goes down through to talk about the shoulders. I mean, he gives some really neat uh, specifics in there that are like, oh, that's creepy. Okay, it's like, <laughs> well, maybe this thing is real. I mean, you could read so many of these accounts. And then I was really disappointed because Stan Winston, the great special effects guy, he just casually dismissed it and said, it's a guy there's in a bad a, fursuit, sorry. There's a huge dispute over why Stan Winston said that, though, actually. what What is that? Tell me. Well, they tried to get all of these makeup artists at the time to replicate the suit, and basically the guys who tried could not do it. And so th- it was kind of like a credibility thing with them. They just kind of dismissed it out of hand, even though a lot of them knew that what what had been done, if it was in fact done, was impossible. One of the few theories um, is that it's just an outsider artist, someone who was unschooled in special effects. And so they did things that the average makeup artist wouldn't have thought of because they were kind of creating it from, you know, outside the norm of the industry. Yeah. But there's a guy who's a major, who was a major um, uh, makeup artist at that time period who's since spent a lot of time um, breaking down, you know, what was available at that time versus what's available now. And and they still really have not been able to replicate this due to some very specific stuff like the way the body itself moves. Yes. Um, there's a there's a herniated uh, is it herniated muscle or something in the leg that that they can see in the film that, you know, yeah shows that it's actually near the near the surface of the skin the place in which the leg bends is unnatural for a human the way the arms the arm swing is unnatural for a human there are a few different things like that in the the way the muscles um can be seen to move and kind of like ripple the way the muscles move under the skin is yeah. not characteristic of just a an ape suit yeah, I, I'm a big fan of that. I'm actually more a fan of uh, the Abominable Snowman, um, but because I don't want to make a scary Abominable Snowman movie someday is like a, a goal that I have. But um, but I spent a lot of time <laughs> researching Bigfoot, and I actually listened to uh, a podcast called The Bigfoot Show, where they kind oh, yeah. of kind of it's kind of like a MythBusters for it's great Bigfoot, and they kind of debunk different. Um, stories that are in the news and stuff that's a good one now see that guy from that show was on horrorphilia um one time and this was about i don't know it was within the last two years so people should look it up if you can and honestly by the end of that by the end of the episode um i was really unsettled and and that's the thing number one i don't know why bigfoot is a little bit unsettling to me like why is that is it creepy to you why is it creepy um, I've, I, I had never thought of it as creepy, honestly. Um, so I think, if, I think it might be because of that uncanny Valley thing, you know, that we talk about just that's so close to humanoid, but not humanoid that that scares us. I personally am terrified of gorillas. So if there is a giant wood gorilla, um, in, you know, in the North American continent, that's terrifying to me. Um, so if you were out camping and you saw Bigfoot, you'd be freaked out or not? Well, I think my position on it's evolving thanks to all this research I've done into into it and because of, you know, um, like a movie like Willow Creek. But previous to this, 
I mean, you know, I got to say Harry and the Hendersons was my main access to the world of Bigfoot. And so <laughs> I always have always imagined Bigfoot as a kind, vegan, uh, animal loving <laughs> and, you know, human friendly kind of creature. So, well, I, I, this is maybe I shouldn't even put this out there, but I'm going to, you know, me, wolf man. <laughs> I can't wait. What are you going to say, everyone? Yeah, this is a... Well, here's the thing. Um, Maybe one reason why this freaks me out, and and people will probably mock, and and I'm not going to go into this too in-depth, but I've heard other people give theories, okay, that that Cain from the Bible, right, the Cain, the first murderer, um, has... still walks the earth today. And has an appearance somewhat that could, that could be construed as the Bigfoot like, and it's like if that even if that were true, I mean, probably nobody listening to this believes that could even potentially be true. But if it were, that would really freak me out. Yeah, that is that is a <laughs> scary explanation. For sure. <laughs> You're like oh, that was really um, generous of you there, Josh. What you said, but I'm just saying, like, I mean, <laughs> I, for some, I think the reason it freaks me out is because. Um, well, this thing obviously is, if it is, if it does exist, then it is out there and lots of people have seen it and yet it manages not to be captured. And so there must be some degree of stealth and ability. And um, yeah. Well, I, I, honestly, I, I spent some time in Alaska um, over the last two years, as some of our listeners will know, and I, I met several native Alaskans who definitely believe in Bigfoot. Some of them have had what they would say would be personal interactions with Bigfoot. Um, there were stories about a family being run out of town um, by this creature. They have their own name for it. I, I'm blanking on it right now. But, um, but I mean, this guy was really scared. The guy I talked to, like he really believed that their family had been kind of like hunted by this Bigfoot creature, there's a story. One of the villages that I stayed out. I mean, this is out in the middle of nowhere. Now, see, you could make a great film from that story. <laughs> I'm serious. That's amazing. They have a story that they captured one and they put it into um, this little house where they smoke meat and stuff, and they they kept it in there until it kind of like um, you know died and, and dried up, and they supposedly still have the carcass somewhere up in this village that I went to. Um, there's some there's some interesting stories, but they their whole thing is that uh, you know they believe in kind of a a witch uh, witch doctor kind of magic in, in some of these villages. They're ancient tradition. Most of them are Christian now, but they but you know they they believe in kind of this ancient um, medicine. I guess is what they would call it, like a medicine man kind of thing. And they just believe that uh, animals have their own medicine as well, and that this Bigfoot has the strongest form of medicine, essentially that he would be able to know when you're coming and be able to move almost like the matrix or edge of tomorrow where they can like move before you get there because they know you're coming essentially. Um, And uh, yeah, and it's just something that they believe, but just on like a more, you know, every day kind of love. I've again, I've been up in Alaska hunting moose, and moose are giant animals. I mean, yes. And I was filming a documentary. I wasn't hunting myself, but giant animals and bears as well. And as we've been, you know, we're out hunting for bears and moose. They could be 
a few feet from you and you'd never know. And there are these giant animals and they would, they can move so stealthily if they need to, you know, and it's pretty, and it's pretty scary and crazy to think about. And you go out there. I mean, there, I was in areas where you could walk for your entire life and never run into another human being. And, uh, you know, I, there's definitely places out there, you know, it wasn't until I got out there where I thought, okay, like something could live out here, Northern California. Mm. I'm not as sure. But out there, I felt like, okay, there could definitely be a whole other species out here and we would never know about it. And in this movie, (laughs) Willow Mm. Creek, they cover a lot of the kind of basic um, Bigfoot community talking points about how, well, new species are discovered every year. Right. And they they run through a lot of that stuff, which I, you know, again, as kind of an enthusiast, I was glad to hear um, them discussing that. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like it's kind of... It's kind of a um, cursory kind of um, usage of of that stuff. I feel like it could have been used a little more effectively. It feels a little surfacey to me. It doesn't feel very um, integrated into the storyline. It's just kind of all. It's like they had the Wikipedia article up and they just read it out within like you know ten yeah. minutes. And <laughs> that kind of bugged me. I'd, I'd have liked to see it used a little more deftly, but. Um, well, well, they do they do work it in there, which is kind of fun. Well, yeah. Well, the structure of the film is such that um, the number one, it's kind of starts out like a touristy type of thing because this couple is there in that community, which is a huge tourist trap, of course, and they want to, you know, go film Bigfoot, but they're also filming the all the touristy stuff, and so it, it's almost it actually seemed. Um, organic to me the way that that stuff came up you're right it's just kind of all thrown at you you know and his girlfriend she is the skeptic right and he wants to believe he reminds me of like you know in x-files the david Duchovny character he wants (laughs) to believe but um and she's the skeptic and so he's throwing out this stuff kind of at her to to battle her and um i don't know i went for it why don't you uh, why don't you like that i'm not clear on it I just don't feel like I just feel like it wasn't integrated into the story. Again, it just feels like somebody's reading a Wikipedia article off of like, mm. here are all the things that people in the Bigfoot community will recognize as their primary arguments for why Bigfoot can exist. I just wish that was, I don't know, a little more integrated. Just the whole movie felt very shallow to me, and in the way that it approached that stuff. And maybe it's just because I'm too close to it, like I know too much about it. But I don't know. I don't think I don't think that's the case. Um well, yeah. I, it did the it did the whole Blair Witch Project thing, which is kind of fun where they interview a lot of people in this tourist trap place and yes. some of them are real people that live there and some of them are actors that they've planted. Um <laughs> and, and it, that's that's fun. And there was definitely um I felt a nod to Blair Witch where like um at one point they're kind of lost in the woods wandering around and they keep seeing the same tree and they're arguing about that. And I'm like, this is right out of Blair Witch. That's pretty funny. Yeah, to me. Which I don't think of that as a nod so much as just like <laughs> bad filmmaking. It's like, this has already been done <laughs> like this exact thing. So you didn't think he was doing that to kind of like make fun of that. I, I almost thought it was tongue in cheek. Oh, uh, maybe if that's the case, then maybe, but I, he apparently, Points the Blair Witch Project is one of the films that got this genre right. Um, yeah, I read a couple interviews with uh, Bobcat, and he, you know, wasn't particularly interested in found footage, um, well, or horror. I don't believe it was Joe Lynch that kind of talked him into doing this. 
this way. He said he was more interested in maybe even doing his own documentary at first. We'll see. Um, or coming up with some other story around the subject matter. Well, let's talk about his approach to found footage in this. Because, yes, it is a, a found footage horror film, you know. And a, um, see, I was looking forward to that because I didn't know that stuff that you just said. And it just struck me as, you know, Bobcat Goldthwaite struck, strikes me as a man who would have a slightly different approach to horror and to the found footage convention. And so, right. um, for example, uh, one thing I appreciated is that, um, you know, they, they of course, put in that line, there's no cell phone reception, right? Yeah. And the characters, I even say, they even say something to the effect, yeah, that's how every horror movie starts. And I love it because, like, the characters in this film know about horror movies, whereas usually they, they aren't even aware that horror movies exist. They don't seem <laughs> to be aware. And, and so I thought that was kind of a good way to, I guess, sidestep that or do something a little bit different. It, it reminded me of, um, they do that in Dead Snow, right? I mean, that yeah. same thing. And then I think a Bigfoot film. It's a very scream kind of. Absolutely. Yeah, it's meta, self-referential. But what about this, Josh? I think that filming a Bigfoot out in the woods is a great reason to leave the camera on. And I think that's one inherent thing about this film that works really well because usually people argue, okay, when stuff started getting real or, or things started getting scary, you'd drop the camera. And actually, um, Bobcat addresses that very well as well. And I'm, I'm really impressed because, um, you know, the this found footage film doesn't unfold quite like others do in that regard. Yeah, I, I don't know. My feelings about that are complicated. I, I do think that usually films, found footage movies that are supposed to actually be movies work a lot better. I think that's one of the reasons that Blair Witch Project holds up so well. The idea was that they were making a movie, so that's why they have their cameras on. Yeah. Um, and I feel like something like The Last Exorcism, again, works better than most. Um, yeah. I feel like, you know, they don't have to make that excuse. And I, I usually like that type of found footage movie better. Um, for that reason, I think it gives an, it gives a reason for someone to be on camera. Troll Hunter is another one like that. Um, it gives a reason for the camera to be on. Yes. And so it's nice. And it also usually lends itself to better camera work. Um, which I appreciate in the genre. Right. I, which this is a pro the problem I have with this movie. I don't feel like if these people are really going to make a documentary, they're failing terribly. Like this yes. is the worst made documentary. <laughs> it's like the worst YouTube documentary I've ever seen. Well, you know? yeah, not you're exactly, I a hundred percent agree with you about that, but they are obviously amateurs. This is almost like, you know, it's this guy's birthday. It seems like this is like a little personal project he wanted to do. I mean, these guys are yeah, on but they're the also kind of saying that they're in the film industry at some point. Like she's an actress and he wants to be a filmmaker, but he hates L.A. And like so there's like they are supposed to kind of be in the industry to some degree as well. I don't know. In some ways, I would say you're going to hate this. The first 20 minutes of the Lost Coast tapes is far better than the first 20 minutes of this movie. Yeah, in fact, I'm glad you brought that up because I did. I wanted to do a little bit of compare contrast here because, um, yeah, I actually felt like the front half of the Lost Coast tapes works better than this. Way better. Yeah, so I agree and, and Particularly in the believability of these people are filming a movie. Like, it feels like they're filming a documentary in that, for the most part. I mean, yeah. like, it, it, you know, of course, it strays from it eventually, but none of these movies really 
are strong enough, other than Blair Witch Project, are strong enough to really stick with the the notion of the you know the they're making a movie. But well, uh, okay, how about well? Here's something I want to ask you about. So, so in a film like this, you have a, a really big inherent risk that they have to take, which is um, there's a lot riding on the payoff in a film like this because obviously there's not going to be um and i'm not saying whether or not there's bigfoot shows up in this or not but i'm just saying you're not going to have bigfoot scenes every five seconds in this kind of a movie it's obviously going to be front loaded with just setup and then you know you hope or you expect the back end of the film to be more suspenseful in the payoff so that I think that's really risky, and I think that's one one thing with this film that I think will take some patience for people, is because um, you know the beginnings of the film are just really sunny and green and pleasant, and you know that there's there's not a lot to get freaked out about, and I think that's why the very opening scene it just shows a camera on the ground. This is the very opening shot, everybody. Camera on the ground, and like it's filming the weeds in front of it and you hear some sniffing around the camera. Well, again, this is where the Blair Witch Project succeeds that this doesn't is that even though the movie isn't that scary at the beginning, the characters inside the movie are attempting to make a scary movie. So this, there's still kind of this creepiness yes. and this tone and this kind of looming, you know, fear and danger that's over the entire project. Whereas again, with this movie, I don't know, it's just as a really weird yeah, I mean, I agree it's a, it's with you. It's a really weird exa- example of a documentary film if it's supposed to be a, if that's what it, we're supposed to believe that it is. You know? I, I totally agree with what you just said. So I'm with you 100% on that. And um, and I just wanted to say, I think that opening scene of the sniffing is just there, kind of like in a slasher film that opens with a kill and then it takes a while for the setup. I think it's just there to show us, okay. Hang in there because we're going to get where you want to go. I think that's what they were trying to do. But here's what really baffles me. In this film, near the beginning, when they're starting, like he's shooting the very first scene of the documentary, supposedly. And it shows him record the intro segment like three different times. And I'm like, wow. I mean, that is gutsy on Bobcat's part to, to do the same thing three times for us because we don't really want to see this anyway, this part of the film. And then he's doing it three (laughs) times. So what do you think about that, Josh? Well, I think the idea is just to make it feel like it's real and, you know, capture the essence of that. But again, that's quickly abandoned, I think. And that's a problem for me. I just, I don't know, man. It's, um, I mean, I think Bobcat's trying to do something different. And I think that you have hit on a few of those things Right off the bat, he's also trying to deliver his trademark kind of creepiness, usually in kind of like a sexually perverse way. And I won't get too much into that because I feel like, you know, it's it's pretty much a spoiler. Right. But I think the problem with the movie for me is that is what you talk about in the payoff. I feel like it was pretty close to a couple of times a little earlier in the film, giving us some moments like, oh, okay, like, you know, we can pepper Bigfoot throughout this movie and it would work. And I think, um, I feel like they pulled back when they didn't have to. And I find that kind of annoying personally. Yeah. Well, and to speak to the naturalistic elements, like, um, number one, I mean, I thought the dialogue was actually pretty naturalistic. 
I kind of yeah, like that. I, didn't, I mean, I didn't like I didn't like the actors. I know he was trying to do a mumblecore movie. He said he was inspired by the Duplass brothers and Joe Swanberg and those guys. Yeah, I I didn't love the dialogue. It was natural because the actors were making it up. But I didn't find them particularly interesting. And I've seen a lot of people. Uh, sorry, I've been reading so many reviews about this, which I usually don't do before review. But I was so baffled by this movie because I'd heard so many good things about it coming out of the film festival circuit. That I just read review after review after review, and so many people are just praising this movie. And one of the things they keep saying is like these characters are so likable, and that's so rare for a horror movie. And I didn't find the characters likable at all. They were dry, they were bugging me the entire time. Yeah, I mean, I just found them average, but I did find them believable, and I thought their performances were good until you know she had to bring it with some fear. You know, I didn't think she could pull off fear. I don't. I don't think she sold that. But she played falling in love with someone pretty well, and that's. And he, I don't feel like he was ever good in the whole movie. Him, well, he just seemed kind of like of um, kind of a not a doofus as in a dumb person, but just somebody that that would be kind of annoying that you wouldn't necessarily want to hang out with too much. But what about the old lady in there? Um, Nita Rally. Um, she worked there for the past 20 years and she doesn't really believe in, you know, Sasquatch. But um, I thought it's like, is this a real person? Because it's like they interviewed a real person. She was so believable. Like, is she one of those? Oh yeah. I thought, she, I thought that she was real for sure. I know that the guy in the bookstore was real and I know that the guy with the guitar was real. Um, I know that the guy who was like the farm or the uh, ex forest ranger was not real because his name is Peter Jason. He's an actor. They didn't credit him on IMDb and I don't think they credited him in the closing credits of the movie either, but I've worked with him before. So I, I, I know who he is. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, uh, you know, it was interesting to see that, you know, some of them were and some of them weren't, but okay. Um, I, I know for sure that he wasn't, and I know for sure that those other two people weren't because I've seen them interviewed elsewhere with with real Bigfoot <laughs> kind of stuff. So. Oh, that's awesome. Well, um, uh, so here, here's I got a couple other things here for you, then Josh, because I've actually got a lot to say about this, and I'm actually kind of shocked at how um, disenchanted you seem to be with the film. Because I actually, um, I, I don't know, I've got a lot of things to say about this. Number one, in a movie like this, you have, the big question is, is, is this movie going to have a real Bigfoot in it? That's the big question. And I'm not going to reveal that here, of course, in the review. And in fact, um, what I love about this movie is you actually ask four questions while you're watching this. And, and this, to me, Josh, is the engine of this movie. This is the the fuel and this is what makes it fun for me number one it's like is there going to be a big real bigfoot attack um number two um and they they seeded this in the movie as a possibility is there going to be just an animal attack you know maybe these people aren't going to encounter bigfoot at all but maybe they're just going to get eaten by a bear right and i won't say whether that happens or not or um, or cougar or cougar or um Maybe the local psychos, like people that just are dangerous people. This could actually be a slasher film or something like, you know. Deliverance, yeah. Yeah, exactly like that. Yeah, like where, and and again, you know, there are things throughout the film where they seed these possibilities and, you know, she's nervous, the the female in this, <laughs> the girl, what's her name in this the character? Darn it. 
Uh, Kim? Kelly. Yeah. Yeah, Kelly. Sorry about Kelly that. Kelly and Jim. Yeah, Kelly and Jim. So, um, you know, Kelly's nervous, not really about seeing a Bigfoot, but she's nervous about bears and cougars and and psychopaths that live in the backwoods and stuff. And I think that's pretty awesome because they talked about, you know, pot farmers who don't like people coming around. And then the fourth possibility is nothing could happen at all. And this would be a lame movie, right? So, um, so I don't know. What did you? I mean, did you have these questions? Like, were or you? The fifth possibility is something could happen, but you would have no idea what it was. <laughs> right. Something like that is also an option. But I mean, as they would arise, I was like, you know, I would think, oh, okay, that would be so cool if these people do like a, you know. And I guess that's my problem with the movie. There was a lot of cool things that could have happened. <laughs> And it, you know, the payoff is really a bummer. And, and I would say not just at the ending of the movie, but throughout the movie, I think there are only one or two times where it's actually exciting. And I think that shows the limitation of the found footage genre, or at least of the way it was used by Bobcat Goldthwaite, which is in a normal horror movie, you would get all of these fun scenes and those are denied you because of the format. And that's, that's frustrating as a viewer, I think. And it's obviously not always like that. And I don't think it has to be like that, but I think that's my frustration with this movie is there was a lot of opportunity that I would just say was missed opportunity. Um, and maybe, you know, you could say, well, be patient. This is an interesting version. And, and, you know, I would argue that with a lot of movies, but I just don't think this was particularly interesting. I didn't find the characters particularly interesting. Um, Okay. You know, we're we're going to be talking about siege movies here in a minute. Mm-hmm. So I thought that it was kind of interesting to me that this was an an example of a siege movie. Yes. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah, and I thought um as siege movies go, I I don't think this is too much of a spoiler to say there's one shot in this movie that lasts for nearly 20 minutes. It's 18 minutes. I was going to that I'm glad you came to this cuz that's right where we are. Um there, there is a scene and a tent that that is essentially a siege narrative. Something is outside, and we don't know what it is. Right? They wake up in the middle of the night, yeah, and they hear noises. And this is such a brazen, and um, I don't want to say brave because you you tell me firefighters are brave, <laughs> but but I think this is a really gutsy move. It's bold. Yeah, very bold because this is what it is. The camera is there looking at their faces it's kind of dark in the tent and they're just listening and 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 every once in a while you'll hear these random noises outside but um for 18 minutes that's what you've got now for me Josh it was suspenseful and it was pretty tense and I thought it was creepy and and it, and I found it affecting so it worked for me but I, I think I felt like the first 3 to 5 minutes um weren't as good in terms of the way the buildup works. And mm-hmm. I felt like they kept them in there because the actress got a little unleashed during that point and they didn't want to lose that part of her performance and they wanted to keep the footage uncut. Yeah. Because I think otherwise you would have edited out maybe those first, you know, two to six minutes somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they were so, they so liked the idea of having this one interrupted cut that they left it in, even though I feel like it, made the film a little bit weaker. Um, I, I like the idea of it. Don't get me wrong. I think yeah. it's, it, I like the boldness of it, but I, again, I don't think where it goes is as interesting as it could be. And yeah. that, that bums me out. Um, well, yeah, 
I'm I'm with you on that. I mean, I I agree that um, 18 minutes. <laughs> well, the whole film itself is is uh, an investment for the kind of an expensive investment for the payoff that yeah. you get ultimately. And I was watching this on my TV, so I paused it about. I don't know, like 17 minutes in, and I was like, this is getting long. I wonder how long this has been. <laughs> I, I paused it, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, oh, there's only 10 minutes left in this movie? Oh, yeah. great. This isn't going to pay off. Well, see, because I was thinking, uh, it starts at about 47 minutes into the film. That's when yeah. this starts, and it runs to about an hour and five minutes. And, um, and I was thinking, are they going to take this thing all the whole way home from this tent scene? And um, I mean, that was kind of, I was shocked. I, I just, but I could see people watching this and being just completely annoyed and maybe even, I, I don't know if they'd shut it off, but I could see people really not having the patience for the risk that he took here. I would say I have to give the film credit in that I didn't notice for a very long time. Like I was sucked in enough and listening hard enough to what they were listening to that it took me quite a while because I didn't know about that, that shot going in. And so it took me quite a while to realize, Oh yeah, this is still happening, <laughs> you know? And that was kind of a surprise. So I, I have to give the film credit for that. Yeah, there we, are a lot of things I liked about it, but there were just as many things that, as I, that I didn't like about it, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, it is funny to think about the fact that um, you're sitting there in silence, listening intently as a viewer and then the actors are also sitting there in silence, just listening intently. And that's what's going on for a long time in this movie. And uh, that's just like much of that, though, all I could imagine was Bobcat Goldthwait yeah. outside the tent rustling bushes and stuff like I couldn't. You know, there was there was that moment where I, I was just imagining the filmmakers outside, you know. Well, not for me, because the woods, I mean, <sighs> That that's one of the strengths of this film is the woods are dark and it's scary in the woods at night. I just it's just inherently scary, and um I was freaked out. I mean I was truly creeped out in this. So um I I was gonna talk. We already talked about the Patterson Gimlin thing, and um and I wondered. The only other thing I wanted to say about that was that I wondered if it was the best idea to kind of hinge or build their story around it because this kid wanted to go to the same spot where, you know, the Bigfoot was seen. Yeah. And um and filmed there. And I'm like, well there there's been so much dispelling of this as a hoax. Is this a good thing to hang your story on? But I think that for Bobcat, I read in the the outro credits that he dedicated this film to Patterson and Gimlin. And so um for whatever reason, you know, it must mean something to him. And yeah. And there's I mean other than most people just say, well, like, obviously Bigfoot doesn't exist. There hasn't been any conclusive evidence that the the film was a hoax. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people that still invest a lot of time into and analyzing it. And uh, it's not, again, ob other than the obvious, like, yeah, ob there's also not unicorns and fairies, um, you know, which is what uh, Tim's girlfriend says to him several times throughout the movie. <laughs> um other than the the obvious, you know, the I felt like it was a strong move, and again, it's it's situated within the world of Bigfoot enthusiasts, and so people who know, you know, a little to a lot about Bigfoot will recognize all of this information he's giving, and I'm and I'm assuming it's some in some respect 
Bobcat Goldthwait is one of those people and is interested in this idea. And, you know, and he's using it to talk about other themes as well. You know, as I've read reviews of the film, I've come across some interesting theories as to what the film's actually about. And um, Bigfoot is far from uh, from the topic of conversation. But uh, Wow. Can you say it without spoiling, uh, without giving spoilers? Is that uh, Yeah, like it, the big due to kind of, um, is it Kelly's, the, her approach to the relationship at the beginning mm-hmm. and then where that relationship goes and what Jim's, you know, primary preoccupation is mm-hmm. in terms of their relationship. And then what ends up happening um, kind of in the last moments of the film, uh-huh. it, they're saying it's about male power and, and ways in which may, men kind of try to dominate women and stuff within societies, whether it's like modern society or like a primitive society. Wow. Um, okay. So I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, there's also a lot of obvious clues once you kind of get to the ending. When you, if you look looking back at like things they run across in the diner, oh yeah, scenes that happen um, between her and some of the Bigfoot statues, and the conversations they have about posters and stuff they see on the walls, and oh, a lot yeah. of that, a lot of that stuff pays off um, pretty directly. So it sure does. Yeah, and in fact, um. You know, I want to talk about a couple unsettling things like that. But um, first, though, because I don't want to end on negatives for me, because I, I like this film a little more than you did, it sounds like. But um, one thing that you see in the trailer is they come back to their tent at one point and things are kind of ransacked. And he's like, what's my sock doing in a tree? And I'm like, what? Bigfoot wouldn't put your sock in a tree. You know, like <laughs> that just bugged me so much. Like that was a negative for me. And I know that's nitpicky, but. Man, that annoyed me for some reason. And I already talked about how I didn't think her acting, when she's scared, I didn't think it could cut it, her performance. Um, And I'll admit, in some ways, this movie is, at times, at one point I wrote in my notes, this movie is kind of a snooze fest. (laughs) Because, you know... It is. I mean, and it I takes can't imagine patience. watching it a second time. Whereas with the first, like with yes. know, a lot of these, like a wreck or something, they're still fun to rewatch. But I can't, yeah, can't imagine rewatching Willow Creek. I, I 100% agree. I mean, this has got like zero percent rewatchability value. I think. I mean, personally, and then there, there's another. Um, and I'm going to be careful how I talk about this, but you know, at one point we see. We see something, and um, I, I guess I can't even talk about it without. <laughs> we we see some sort of like evidence, quote unquote, and it just looks very manufactured, and um, just so cookie cutter and generic. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That is your. That's what it really looks like, though. I mean, that's like not really, but I'm saying within like, if you go talk to. Uh, that professor Meldrum at Idaho state university, that's the stuff that he has on hand it resembles almost exactly what's in the movie. It's not- wow. Well, that makes me more skeptical than I guess, because <laughs> it looks so generic, but, um, but what he'll talked about is like the dermal ridges that exist on that, that like show that it's, you know, yeah. Related to a living thing. Yeah. I guess so, but I mean, I'm like, come on. You, I, 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 anyways, what do I know, apparently? <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, so you get, throughout this, you get the tales, like people who have different encounters or unsettling stories. And I think in a horror film, anytime you have things that are ominous like that, I think that helps, and that helps lead this along. Um, You got some local trouble, you know, you got some people who aren't super friendly to these tourists, and then um, you got, you know, you got signs hanging up, which you had mentioned, and I think all of that stuff is, um, I don't know, kind of ominous, and I think that that helps See Would you agree movie. that her interaction with some of those things, though, are also like directly paying off, you know, what your perception of what happens at the end or possible interpretation of what's going on at the end? Yeah. I mean, now that looking back at it, but while you're watching it, you don't think that. And so, I mean, now that people yeah. listen to this review, when they see the film, maybe they'll be watching for that and trying to like look into it further. But um, I don't know. I, I mean... I didn't mind it. I actually kind of liked some of those creepy elements. So um, let's wrap up with our final thoughts and ratings on this then. And um, so you go first, Josh. Tell me yeah. what you thought of Willow Creek. I'll go first because I, I don't want to leave people on a downer. Um, I'm a big fan of Bobcat Goldthwait. I was really excited like you to see what he would do with a horror movie. I was excited before I even knew he directed it when I saw the poster for this movie, you know, a year or two ago when the when the Alex party artwork came out, I just was blown away and uh, super excited because I'm always on the lookout for a good Bigfoot movie. One of my favorite, you know, characters that has never really had a good film. I was pretty disappointed with um, the presentation here, especially since it's supposed to be a documentary film and my mind automatically goes to Blair Witch and Last Exorcism and Troll Hunter and all of which were movies where the documentary idea was done a lot better and gave us much better visuals to look at. Um, I like that it includes a lot of the Bigfoot enthusiast stuff, but it's kind of, um, I don't know, done in a really shallow, superficial kind of way, and so that bugs me. Um, I think the movie's pretty boring, actually, um, and I think it that's okay um, if it's, successfully pulling off something bigger or if it um, pays off eventually. But for me, neither of those things happened. I think on the surface level, it's just a pretty bland um, found footage movie that's worse than most. But I think, um, you know, there are a lot of interesting things going on here kind of in the background. If you think about it a little bit more that Bobcat's doing, there's actually some pretty twisted stuff happening. if you kind of dissect the film a little bit further and, you know, and he's doing a few different interesting things uh, with the incorporation of Bigfoot lore that no one has really done in a movie before. So I appreciate all of that and I appreciate the possibilities, but for me, it just wasn't executed well. And I would have much rather seen Bobcat do this in a straight up fictionalized film rather than trying to attempt the found footage thing. And I guess I partially blame Joe Lynch for that suggestion as well. But, um, so, so that was probably the cause of my biggest disappointment. But, um, so I would give Willow Creek a three and say it's an avoid, um, unless wow. you're a big Bigfoot fan and you just have to see everything related to Bigfoot, which I would have counted myself as. But I felt like it was a pretty big waste of time in the end. Oh well, I'm so shocked at this, Josh. You just I, you never cease to uh, surprise me. 
I mean, really, like I don't know if it was my expectations were so high, and I, you know, and I, and I would say, well, I'll rewatch the movie again and give it another shot. But I honestly, it's so I can't imagine rewatching it like right. you're saying. Yeah. So I don't see my score going up. Um, yeah. But I, I guess I just had really high hopes for it, and um, and the you know, I don't know. I mean, look at something like Troll Hunter looks so good, and I don't know. Uh, part of it's my documentary filmmaker background. Part of it's my Bigfoot enthusiast background. Part of it's that I've been waiting my whole life for a good Bigfoot movie, and I thought this might be the one finally because I had so much faith in Bobcat. But um, yeah, it was a big disappointment for me. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> see, for me, uh, people should know. Number one, I'm a I'm a found footage lover. I love found footage. So, yeah. and I'm okay with I'm okay with a setup. In the beginning, like this has, which is really lengthy. I'm okay with the character building and stuff like that. You know, I so um, I know already a lot of people are like, nope, not for me. I mean, so those two things are important to me. And I think people should know that Willow Creek is one of those movies where what you hear is scarier than what you see. Okay. Now, I do think this movie is actually scary and suspenseful I th- and and maybe not scary is the word but I think creepy it's it's really unsettling to me I think it's de- it's definitely a one-time watch especially if you like Bigfoot but as Josh has said there is no way <laughs> like I could see re-watching this movie <laughs> at all like ever in my life so if I'm being totally honest, this is this movie is probably not for most people, but I think it takes some big risks, and for me, some of those succeed, and I don't think it's the Bigfoot movie that we've been waiting for that Josh was talking about just now. I mean, I agree with you there. It's not the one we've always been waiting for, yeah. but um, it's definitely one of my favorite ones thus far. For a one-time watch. So for me, it's a 7 out of 10. Yeah, and it's a one-time rental because I was actually pretty scared when I was watching it. I mean, sadly, I can agree with you that it's one of the better ones. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But but that's because they're all so bad. I don't know. Okay, so you're saying it's a 3 and a void, and I'm saying it's a 7 and a rental. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's our review of Willow Creek. So you ready to talk about some more... uh, Siege narratives. I sure am. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that they'll be a little bit better than this one. <laughs> well, don't hold your breath too much because we are going to be talking about maximum overdrive. But um, <laughs> let's bring Doc back into the action. When this emergency first began, radio and television was advising people to stay inside behind locked doors for safety. Well, that situation has now changed. And we're able to report a definite course of action for you. Civil defense machinery has been organized to provide rescue stations with food, shelter, medical treatment, and protection by armed National Guardsmen. Stay tuned to the broadcasting stations in your local area for this list of rescue stations. Okay, now it was my turn to choose the theme for this episode. And um, I still don't know if Dr. Shock and Wolfman liked it or not, but you guys have been (laughs) kind of quiet. Did you hate hate my theme? Is that what it is? No. You liked it. Not, not at all. I, I think part of it, what helped, were, you know, a good number of the movies that you chose. So, okay, well, <laughs> I'll speak to that too. Actually, see, the siege narrative is one of my all-time favorite story types, and it basically consists of survivors who are holed up inside 
of some place and there are monsters trying to break in and get them from the outside. And um, probably the most familiar one of these would be the Three Little Pigs story, actually. There you go. Little kids even know this. And you get the three little pigs. They're in these various locations trying to survive as the big bad wolf tries to get inside to get them. So that's... uh, Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, as long as I've known you, you've been a fan of... This talking about this type of movie, so I I wasn't surprised at all when I saw it. I was okay. I felt it was very fitting nice. uh, for your choice. I'm I'm happy to discuss it. Didn't love all of your picks, so I'm ex- interested to get to that part of the conversation. Well, yeah, and I wanted to address that too because I thought, well, first of all, I don't like to review or um, films on here that have been talked about ad nauseum. Like for example, you know, Night of the Living Dead has been talked about a lot. For example, um, yeah. but the ones that I chose in like Maximum Overdrive, not a great film, right? And people may or may not want to hear about that at all, but probably not. But the four I chose were carefully selected in hopes of illustrating something or another about the siege narrative. And 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 that's really what we've been doing all along when these themed episodes. We we try to pick films that will kind of enlighten or inform our theme. And so that's how we got there with these picks. But yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't I wasn't 100% excited as much as I might be about just covering new stuff or whatever. So I'm with you, Josh. I, I feel that. I feel that complaint. Anyways, so... Doesn't lessen my interest in the topic. Oh, that's good. Right. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> so, and, and for those who, you know, because we're going to be talking about these not individually like just this film and then move into the second film. We're going to be talking about all four of these movies at the same time as we discuss the topic. But don't worry, we're still going to rate each film individually at the end of our discussion. And um, so the questions, we're going to be talking about four main questions, and it's what are the characteristics of an effective siege narrative? What types of monsters do we typically find in a siege narrative? And then what are the common conventions associated with the survivalists at, that are at the location, you know, the shelter where they're holed up. And then that's when we'll go into our ratings and then we'll close the show by giving you some other horror siege narrative movies. So um, are you guys ready to jump in then? Let's do it. <clears throat> okay. Let's do it to it. All right. Well, if you don't mind, you know, since, since this is my, my little passion pet project, um, I got a little opening thesis, and then I'm going to kick it over to you guys. So here's my opening remarks on this. What makes an effective siege narrative? One reason I love siege narratives is because usually it seems like they, they end up being Beastly Freaks movies as well. Many times they're both, and everybody knows how I feel about that. And like all horror movies, you need victims, and you need at least one monster. But the the theory behind the siege narrative, or why I think it works, is because we're all inherently afraid of death. And an effective horror movie kind of taps into that fear of death. And a horror movie monster represents our appointment with death or a character's um, day of reckoning, so to speak. And so that's what makes the monster scary. And then, so in a siege narrative, you got this day of reckoning scenario that is delayed. So I'll call it the delayed day of reckoning. And yes, I honestly, I sat and I thought about this over the past couple weeks, you guys. And I think the reason for this, the reason we like this is because that delayed death 
is a way to generate suspense and to prolong the fear within the viewer because we know that death is at the doors. And in this, these kind of movies, it's literally at the doors because you got the big bad wolf outside. It's imminent. It just hasn't accessed you yet. And so in Maximum Overdrive, the trucks aren't really scary or the beastly freak bugs in the mist aren't super scary, but just the fact that they represent that you're doomed kind of makes them work on some level. So anyway, we're going to talk about that more, but I I just want to kick it over to you guys and see what your opening thoughts are about the siege narrative. What do you say, Dr. Shock? Yeah, I mean, I can't say that it's one of, it's funny because when you, since, until you brought it up, I mean, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, none of the living dead. Uh, And it seems like um, quite a few zombie movies, I think, fit into this uh, category, Mm -hmm. Um, you you know, with with the siege, that I didn't think about it as much. I just never considered it as much. But, um, you know, you know, thinking back on it, I mean, it does, it isn't, it's an effective uh, form of horror movie um especially with the way it is in uh well like we'll get into a little bit more with with night of the living dead but it's it's like the 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 slow build up of 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 dread you know there there's a little bit of hope at the beginning and then um <laughs> it just slowly gets taken away from you nice you know and i think that that's i think that that's what makes it effective you know you go from okay you're not uh, you don't really know what's going on um, I mean, in a lot of these cases, uh, the, you know, the people who are in, in the movies that we'll be discussing today, they don't have all the answers. I mean, they're fighting for their lives and they don't always know what they're up against. Yes. And I think that actually adds a lot to it as well as they, as they slowly discover, you know, okay, well, here's what's going on. And, um, you know, at, at, at some point they never fully know what it is. <laughs> that they're dealing with, but they got to deal with it, you know, uh, do the best they can to survive. And I think that that, um, uh, I think that that, I think that that really makes it, uh, a- an effective tool for a horror movie that, that alone right there, you know, the unknown. I like that. What do you say, Wolfman? Um, my favorite thing about it is it's, um, it's kind of a plot device that can be used cross genre, so, you know, you can, as Doc said, you can have a zombie movie and many zombie movies kind of fit this mold. Uh, Dawn of the Dead as well, obviously one of my favorites, uh, both versions. Um, you know, vampire movies. We talked about 30 Days of Night during our uh, Feral Vampires episode. And, um, you know, there, there's that portion where they're kind of holed up in the in the attic and I love the that's my favorite moment of the siege narrative when they're kind of like let's get in the cabin let's let's you know close the windows let's <laughs> hammer the hammer the door shut yes. you know let's get the tools that we need to defend ourselves those are my favorite kind of moments um the one I always think about is the end of the lost boys um nice. I love that I love that time when they're you know they're getting ready for the coming storm and they're getting their holy water and their steaks and um, and their garlic and they're, they're, you know, trying to close themselves in the house. And then, oh no, we left the dog outside. It's a little contrived, but <laughs> I love, I love that element. Um, there's always the something outside, like in uh-huh. the midst, 
it's the gun on the hood of the vehicle, for example. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, of course, one of my favorite horror movies of all time, The Thing, also has some excellent siege narrative uh, moments in it. So yeah, it's something I really enjoy watching. Um, I don't think I'd have identified it had it not been for you, actually, um, because it does cross over so many genres. But it's one of my favorite elements you can add into the mix in a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, and, and what I did is to write. I went through these four films as I watched them, and I wrote down things that were familiar to me. And you guys were just awesome right then. You guys just named off a lot of different things that are components of it. And so, like, the first thing, and I tried to do them in order of how the story typically unfolds, but it's interesting to me that many siege narrative films open with wide open spaces. It's free and sprawling. There's lots of air and lots of space. Mm. Interesting. Um, like Night of the Living Dead, for example, opens. Um, it's like a far off distant shot of their car driving up the road toward the cemetery. And, um, you know, Tremors opens like way out in the, in the, like this desert area. It's like on the edge of this cliff and it's just beautiful and open. And I just love how these films will typically go from open to closed. And I think part of the reason for that is so it will psychologically make us viewers feel claustrophobic and trapped and that's pretty cool um another thing is there are usually ominous signs that people ignore and this is kind of this goes back to you know 1950s like sci-fi slash horror-ish movies where there's usually one person who believes it who's seen the alien and then they're running and yelling to everybody and nobody believes them well in this movie it's like it's almost like a lot of different people see ominous signs, but it doesn't really click with them at first. And um, they typically choose to ignore it. And I think that's interesting. So what that means is there, there ends up being a dawning or a realization of trouble and a threat is perceived or recognized. And one of the valuable things about siege narrative films to me is after having seen one, I think they're very rewatchable because we know who the protagonist is, the people that we're rooting for, the hero. And usually, like, for example, in 30 Days of Night, when we rewatched that for an earlier episode, I was so nervous because our heroes didn't know about the vamps yet and the danger <laughs> that was out there before they actually locked themselves in. So, um, you know, that's that's super scary to me. And I up until the point that they have that realization that oh no we got to lock ourselves in from these monsters outside it's really intense for me as a viewer yeah yeah absolutely i, I will i'll definitely agree with you on that one absolutely and it's funny how a lot of times it's uh you know you, your first inkling is always let's let's barricade ourselves in here <laughs> we've got to keep these things out and you know you, you're not always thinking well do i have enough food you know, do I have enough water? That's that's never like the first thing you think about. Yeah. And right. it's not, they don't always get around to that. And, it was in, and in some of them today, it, it wasn't an issue. You know, like the mist. Okay, they're in a, they're in a supermarket. So <laughs> right. I don't think they have to worry too much about that there. Um, even even in uh, Maximum Overdrive, you know, they're at the, they had that restaurant there. But, you know, there, there are times like, in, I'm thinking specifically in um, 30 Days a Night when they're up in that, in that attic. Yeah, you know that they're not that they know at some point they're going to have to go out and get something to eat or or get some water or get something. On that note, too, it's as you 
were listing those movies off, it just occurred to me, it seems like they often are kind of holed up in a place that has a lot of these kind of resources they can repurpose. Um, mm-hmm. Usually weapons, you can turn something kind of ordinary into a, into a weapon that you may not have thought of previously. That seems to be a big favorite uh, thing of the genre. But also, you know, like in a good zombie movie, it usually turns out that the people you've barricaded yourself in with are usually as dangerous, if not more dangerous, <laughs> than the monster. Yes, right. I love that. And um, just to back up for a minute, because I love that point, Josh. We're going to be really delving into that. But, Doc, I like what you said there, because... Um, What's interesting is like in the the mist, the supermarket, they do have lots of food, but they also have the whole front of the store is windows, plate right. glass windows. So usually on a location in a siege narrative, the primary location is never ideal. It has some of the elements, but it usually has some kind of a weakness as well. And they mm-hmm. really have to like shore it up or fortify it. And I think that's super interesting as well. I do like the Dawn of the Dead stuff in both versions where they kind of have this little shopping spree they go on, you know, and they, they have kind the of mall, right. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's a fun, that's a fun location to kind of find yourself stuck in. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one of my favorite things, and this is really interesting to me. And I, I, I never realized this before until this time when I was thinking about it, there is always a catch 22 in a siege narrative where there's an urgency to stay, but also simultaneously an urgency to leave. So the credible threat has been established to persuade people to hold up together. Um, otherwise, they would never do it. But, you know, they've, they've got the threat and they know it's real. So they feel urgently that they need to stay there. But then um, something happens and someone gets injured or or they're low on supplies and it usually becomes life threatening where they have an urgency to leave as well. Yeah. And and that is a killer balance that they have to, you know, ride in these kind of movies. Yeah, and the Walking Dead, they they find this prison and and it you know, it should be the perfect spot where they find this farm and it should be the perfect spot. But there's always a reason, you know, to get out of that perfect spot. Always, um, always. Yeah. Well said, Josh. I like that. I think something something else I, uh, I was noticing, and you get this in a lot of them, is that the the siege is is very rarely nonstop. There are always lulls, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, where where you have time to. I guess they use that for um, you know de- delving a little deeper into the characters. Yeah, giving them a little time to discuss. Hey, what's going on? You know, uh, what's the, what's the situation we're in? Does anyone have any ideas? Um, but very rarely is it is it a non is it a nonstop siege. There are always times of of quiet. And I think that you know has kind of a looming sensation um, that kind of makes it like an it lends an inevitability to kind of the danger outside. Like something's going to happen. Yes, and we're, we're just waiting for it to overtake us, basically. Yes, and a couple other reasons for that. And I'm glad you brought that one up, Doc, because. Um, if they had constant nonstop um, intensity, then we would become, as viewers, we'd become desensitized to it and it wouldn't work. But like Josh is saying, you know, when you have these, these moments of false security, when everybody thinks they're okay right now and it's a temporary reprieve, it's, it's usually like a quiet moment between a couple or like a parent and a child, <laughs> right? It, it's, it seems like it's always that way and you're like, you're just dreading 
what's coming next. Uh-huh. Good, good point. One thing that comes to mind, and it doesn't quite fit the siege narrative, although there are little siege moments throughout, but From Dust Till Dawn is kind of an interesting example because, mm-hmm. like you said, there's a reason they're in there. They're hiding out from the law. Uh-huh. And then there's immediately a reason that they want to get out of there. <laughs> um, and if they do get out of there, they're, they're looking for a little bit of sunlight, right, as well. But there's also this moment where they have to bar themselves into the back room, and then they have to make right. a, a break for the door. And there are all these interesting kind of mini siege moments within that film. It is, and it's it's also a little bit like like you were just saying. It turns it on its side a little bit in that there are they're in there with the monsters, you yeah, know. That exactly. so the siege is like right in their face. They don't have anything between them and what it is that's trying to get at them. Yeah, and, and I mean, they have a few moments they do, but for the most part, it's they're face to face with these things. Yeah, and Tremors has um, a little bit of that quality as well because. You know, what's neat about that, they kind of do a little twist on it where the monsters have semi-access to the primary location where they can get up through the floor. So they have to be up on top of shelves and things inside the store. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think that's a, a, a really fun twist on that. Or then they get up on the rocks and they're safe. But then these rocks are acting as this kind of echo chamber that's actually trapping them there even longer because there's right. no way. To yeah. fool the creatures at that point. And one of the things now, as with all movies, siege narratives will sometimes have, they'll introduce you to characters and you can kind of tell how the characters are going to behave throughout the movie mm-hmm. based on their behavior at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and I think you right. saw that with The Mist. I think you see that in Night of the Living Dead. Um, yeah. You get an idea of that in Maximum Overdrive. However, one of the things I like about Tremors is that, you know, the very first time I saw this movie, um, and I'm thinking specifically about the, you know, Michael Gross and Raven McIntyre. Very first time I saw this movie, I'm thinking, okay, these are the survivalists. These are the ones who have prepared themselves for <laughs> the end of times. Um, so what's going to happen is, is once it rolls around, they're not going to be ready for it. Or, or something's going to happen. And, you know, th- just thinking about like the, the standard formula. And sure enough, we get a scene where they don't know what's coming and the thing bursts into the, the, the you know, I don't want to go too deep into spoilers, but right. it bursts in on them. Mm-hmm. But the first time I saw it, I, I kind of was like, oh, because I did kind of like the characters. And I'm like, oh, that's a shame. But then the movie does, did something that kind of surprised me. And that it made them pretty effective. Yeah. You know, and in what is one of the movie's best scenes, I think, you know, as they're battling this, this, this creature, yes. just nonstop. And then, and then finally they, they overpower it. And I was kind of like, wow, you know, this, <laughs> this one is, it, it kind of shows a little bit of respect for all of its characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Even the two goons that are our main characters in Tremors. They they appear to be ostensibly, you know, idiots, but right. they're actually the, the heroes and, and kind of like the leaders of the group, which is interesting. And, and I like that because it made it, it made it much more difficult to pick who's going to live, who's going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, because if it, I, I would have, at the beginning of the movie, I would have assumed that at least Michael Gross was, was, and again, I don't want to go too deep into spoilers, but in that scene, I would have thought, well, he's going to buy it. Right, right. <laughs> I love that. Um, 
Sorry, I did. I wanted to throw something in there. I'm, I'm jumping all out of order and stuff. But when when Josh said that there was like a mini siege, I, I agree with you 100% there, Josh. I think that some of the best siege narratives have little sieges within the greater story. And in Night of the Living Dead, there's one right at the beginning when the cemetery zombie <laughs> um, traps Barbara in the car and uh-huh. she doesn't have the keys. And so even right then you've got a siege narrative right up front in that film and it's kind of, it foreshadows things to come. And same thing with Tremors when they're marooned on the rocks. Interestingly well, yeah. enough, yeah. interestingly enough, uh, that zombie runs. Yes, he yeah. does. Absolutely. In the opening scene of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in Tremors, they're in the store and then they're on top of the store and then they're on top of a rock and then they're in the back of a truck and it's little siege after little siege throughout the whole uh-huh. film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons, just one why I really enjoy that film. I think another really effective technique is when the filmmakers allow you, the viewer to be, you know, to identify with the camera, obviously, and then to get trapped in with them and that's one of the most effective aspects of night of the living dead because we basically only have the same vantage point as the people in the house and and when you're watching that movie you feel like you're trapped in the house with them and you know the same thing like with these other movies as well like even in the mist i mean we feel just as blind and as in the dark mm-hmm. <laughs> as those characters and so mm-hmm. I-, I love that not knowing you know what's out there because usually it's it's like that same that old adage where like what you what's in your imagination or what you're afraid is out there or what you hear and think in your mind is scarier than what you see and um so i mean i think that's very effective when they can put you in that moment with them they allow you to know what the threat is still so we see you know we see the effects of these monsters but yeah it's not we're not seeing necessarily their plan it's kind of that old hitchcock adage there's a bomb on the bus so right. we've seen what the graboids can do in uh, <laughs> in tremors right but right. so we know what the threat is but we don't necessarily know when they're going to rear their ugly heads All right yes. and you know uh this is something that i think many people I won't say many, that's not fair. I think a lot of people who are writing a, you know, a screenplay that has a siege narrative in it, I, I, I think this is one of the ways that they go wrong. The sequence of events need to unfold organically and naturally and logically. My favorite horror films and just movies in general are the ones that, that don't feel contrived or storyboarded, but like Night of the Living Dead, the things that happen in that movie sequentially, it's like, yeah, that's probably exactly what would happen next and what the characters would do next. And I, I think that makes it a lot more effective. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Now, I absolutely agree. I also think um, we've talked about this a little bit, but about establishing a credible threat and we'll talk more about like the nature of the monsters later. But, um, you know, I think one interesting thing is it seems like they need to really establish the gravity of the situation. Now, that's kind of a difficult thing to do. It's a real challenge if they're putting us in the in the shoes of the people who are trapped inside, because then we don't really get a, a, a sense of what's going on outside like Dawn of the Dead, the 1978 version, does a good job with that, with like the helicopter shots, for example. But in this one, 
Um, in Night of the Living Dead, the way that they give us the sense of a widespread phenomenon is they use like the radio and the TV reports. Now, obviously, yeah. that was a budget issue as well. But I think it's really smart when films can help um, clue us into, you know, the magnitude of the emergency. That was one of the things that, and, and I even um, mentioned this when I when I wrote up the movie, is that a lot of the zombie movies, you get that. I mean, even in the remake of Dawn of the Dead, you the characters are in the dark and they sit around and they'll be watching the news and they'll give them an idea of what's going on. And that is something that you get in, in a number of zombie movies mm-hmm. is that people hear reports of, okay, here's what's going on and and um, you know, lock your doors, uh, the dead are rising, burn them, shoot them in the head, the whole nine yards. One of the things that I liked about Shaun of the Dead was that it took the approach, what if you got people who don't watch the news? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, how, how do they find out what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. That'd be oh, me. That's, a, that's a very legitimate. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, you know, uh, this is kind of what I was just talking about, basically. But I think of the four films that we're kind of talking about specifically tonight, I feel like Tremors is the definitely the strongest in terms of setting up the threat. I mean, they really... You were really scared of these things by the time uh, it gets to the to the point where the characters are dealing with them head on. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's a and, and it even throws you for it even throws you for a, a loop at the beginning when when you first see when when they find the first remnant. You know, you're <laughs> thinking, "Wow, that's a pretty big snake." <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I hope if, if the listeners out there have not seen Tremors, I hope it's already on their queue right now. I mean, I'm I'm really excited. Oh yeah, I I, I remember when that movie first came to video, and I I picked it up and I watched it, and I fell in love with it right away. Me I mean, too. that was like regular viewing for me for for years. For sure, I agree with that. Now, here's an element I want to talk about there, and I, I call it the escape versus the excursion, and um. You know, ultimately, you know, the characters always want to escape, but but even before they do their their final escape or attempt at a final escape, there's usually some type of excursion in the middle, which gives you an idea of how difficult the big escape is, which I love that. So so in order to like spawn a reason for an excursion, usually, like we said, there's life threatening injuries or someone has an infirmity like asthma and they need an inhaler or or it's like survival needs. They're just they need to go out and scavenge for supplies like we always see in The Walking Dead, for example. So I love that. I think that's really effective to have the excursion to precede the escape so we know exactly how hard this is going to be. Yeah. It's rough out there. <clears throat> yeah. It's brutal. Now, it's hard out there for a pimp. <clears throat> exactly. <laughs> now, as we wrap up this question here, which is um, what makes an effective siege narrative, I want to talk about a very ineffective siege narrative specifically, and that's maximum overdrive. I think that this is a pretty <laughs> terrible I mean, well, it's a bad movie, but but not just that. Setting that aside, it's not a well-structured siege narrative as well because a lot of the things we talked about above, you know, already are things that they don't do. I mean, basically, in simplest terms, if you haven't seen the movie, you end up having these these trucks, these semi-trucks, which are, um, you know, 
Well, we'll just call it possess- possessed. They're not really possessed, but we're just, they want to kill humans, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so they circle this like diner um, place, this truck stop store, and the people are inside and they're just always circling. And um, I mean, this, <laughs> this movie is broken to me and I'm like, okay, they're trying to do a siege here. But but all the elements, and it's the elements we just named, I mean, so many of those are not even in place in this movie. I mean, how, how did you feel about it, Dave? You know, it's funny. I, <laughs> I mean, of the four movies we're talking about, yes, it's definitely the weakest. It's the goofiest. Yeah. Uh, if, if you think about it, um, just, you know, logically <laughs> trying, trying to put it together. Personally, I don't find vehicles frightening right i mean even a movie that i really enjoyed christine Mm -hmm. i I was never it's not like i was ever terribly frightened of the vehicle you know because there's just something about cars they they they're they're limited i mean if if you if you don't want to be hit by a vehicle don't run down the middle of the road (laughs) you know jump off to the side go up on a on a onto a rock or up a tree or something um, but you know what? The, I mean, it's, I had seen maximum overdrive years ago and it, it had a, a goofy eighties quality to it mm-hmm. that, that I did find somewhat appealing. Um, I, I will agree that it's not an effective siege narrative. Mm-mm. You know, it was almost like a Western with, with, uh, with the, uh, then, you know, the, the, uh, the Indians circling the, the, <laughs> you know, the campsite or whatever, you know, it, it's what it felt like. More along those lines, and and definitely some comedic elements in there. Yeah, uh, it didn't feel as much like a Stephen King story to me, to be honest with you. No, it's not even set in Maine; it's set in North Carolina, which is right. Funny. And and it's um, I mean, it, and Stephen King has that cameo at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, uh, as the guy going up to the ATM. Right. Right. You know, it's it's it it. I can't say that I hated it, but. The, the, I mean, I will agree. I can't really argue the point that I can't really argue for it either. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I I first saw that when I was ten years old, right in 1986 in the theaters, and I think that's probably the last time I saw it. And I really liked it when I was a ten year old. But this time, I'm like, oh man, this thing is this thing is hard to sit through. It's terrible. Like, <laughs> I think it's painful. See, I, I mean, it's it's. Uh, you you really have to you really have to give yourself over to a lot of things to to accept it and yeah and I don't think there was at ever any point that I was scared. Mm-mm. You know, you got a couple of scenes of people with with these things bearing down. I'm standing there and screaming, you know, ah, instead of moving, right. <laughs> Which is really what you need if you're if you have a vehicle bearing down on you. Yes, you know because they can't sneak up on you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's funny. So you so you need to you need to move very slowly, <laughs> mm-hmm. and 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 to be you know pretty pretty dense. Yeah, you know, to, to have these things attack you. And what we're getting at here really is um a monster problem, you know, and. And so that will move into our second question, which is what types of monsters do we typically find in a siege narrative? And, um, you know, just to, I'll throw out a couple little characteristics here. First of all, 
it's usually, not always, but a lot of times it's a beastly freak of some sort or to some degree, or, or at least it needs to have some kind of an animalistic nature where there's like a, a relentlessness, you know, a fierce ferocity uh-huh. that they keep pursuing their prey. And which is why 30 Days of Night, I think, is such an effective example of this. Um, also, I find that the monsters in a siege narrative are usually like a lot of times there are they're plentiful, right? There's usually more than one. Right. And um, except for example, like Cujo, there's just one monster and he's freaking awesome. But but mm. in a lot of these, like like in Night of the Living Dead, the, that farmhouse is, is pretty close to that cemetery. And so there's usually a lot and they usually have access so, so they can bring on an, a considerable onslaught. And, and what really works with that movie, I mean, what got me the first time I saw it, I, I was given that as a gift um, for a bir- my birthday. You know, it, being public domain, it's one of those things that... Uh, readily accessible, and somebody picked up a videotape of it for me, and 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 gave it to me, and I, I, it was the first time I had seen it, and I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm like, oh, you know, these aren't that scary. And they're even setting them up to be not too scary at first, pretty easy to get around. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy goes out on the porch, he steps around a few of them, knocks a few over, but you know, lights the <laughs> chair on fire and everything. He gets, you know, it's it, they're, they're fairly, but then. Then you look out and it's like, oh, okay, there's not just like seven or eight anymore. Now there's like 20. Mm-hmm. And then you look out and you said, wow, now there's like 50. Now there's like 100. Yes. And it's just the slow buildup of dread in that movie. It's, it's you know, to, to the point that you think, well, they'll probably be okay. They'll, you know, they'll get to a car or something. To the, they get to, wow, that, this, is, <laughs> this is not good. I don't see how they're going to get out of this. Well, well, I think I think what you're saying about the relentlessness and the number of threats in a zombie movie is why it's effective. Because I think, um, for me, I usually prefer a smarter monster. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that a lot more threatening. Uh, one of the genres that this siege narrative often crosses over with is the body snatcher movie, which is one of my favorite subgenres. Mm-hmm. And um, and something like the thing is really threatening because it could be around you at all times. You don't know right. where it's at. It's thinking. It's trying to get you. You know, one of my problems with Cujo is that um, the dog is can only go so far to try to get in the car. There's the scene in Scream when Sydney's locked herself in the police car, and Ghostface is really creepy the way he's unlocking the door and coming in the back and going around. And that's something that Cujo can't, can't do. And so when I think about maximum overdrive, I think that's a far less scary. And again, like you said, it's a monster problem, something like duel or Joyride, Those are (laughs) already scarier to me because there's a killer inside the vehicle. Um, And that's just a little bit scarier to me automatically than maximum overdrive or, uh, or Christine, because you know, there's something that can actually make quick decisions, you know. Right. But, but I, I, I can't have you dogging, get it, dogging, dogging on my all-time favorite siege narrative, which is Cujo. <laughs> that is my all-time favorite siege narrative. And, and the reason, see, they, they, the screenwriters or Stephen King and his story supplement that by the fact that the, the kid, there's a, there's a ticking clock on that kid and they've got to get out of the car but they yeah. can't. And right. so that's what makes that story work. 
But I think, again, like with Dawn of the Dead, I think it would be scary if there were 300, 300 Cujos. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it started out with one, and then the next thing you know, there's five. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Well, that's actually where we're going next is, is um, in a monster, you know, with the monsters of a siege narrative, there is always a breach, at least one breach. They have to breach the fortified location. Because otherwise it would be pretty boring. They'd be locked inside. It would be the three pigs in the house made of brick. And that would be the end of the story. But no, they breached the domain. Well, and they when, breached the domain in the first two pigs' homes as well. Right, but I mean, that's Which how Which leads is. us to the bricks. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. And so when that happens, what I love, and I think what really works well for these films, is when the breach starts to happen, then the order that was that used to exist inside just goes straight to chaos and a good example of that is in the mist i mean when we have the breach in the mist it's insane and 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 truly kind of scary like it's really um startling and upsetting and jarring to me oh i I agree and i think in in the mist that's one of the movies where they're inside for a reason but then at about a little past the halfway point, you're saying to yourself, you got to get, they got to get out of there. Right. <laughs> you know, but the way things are, are um, uh, evolving with, with, with some of the other characters, mm-hmm. they, they got to get out of there. Yeah. And what happens late in the film, like in the, in the last few minutes inside that store is something that I think should have probably happened. <laughs> Uh, at the halfway point <laughs> totally agree <laughs> i totally agree with you i know what you well mean. i mean that's something that's that's makes the mist really work is you know like you said the uh the place that they're hiding is really tenuous in terms of just having these giant glass windows in front you know there's not there's not this great feeling of safety and it is weird that kind of as far as i remember one of the very first attacks comes you know, when a door is open and this, this big heavy metal door and there's just a small, you know, crack. And you would think it would, the first thing that would happen was just everything would come flying through the window. <laughs> right. But, um, but you know, you know, what it reminded me of was Feast. Um, there's that moment mm-hmm. where the hero runs in, right? And all of a sudden he's just instantly <laughs> ripped to shreds through the window. And you think, well, okay, this isn't the best uh, structure Right. I was thinking about that movie, as a matter of fact, as we were doing. I think one of my favorite scenes in that is, you know, they they lay out the probability of survival. (laughs) And I think they do that for one specific character, probability of survival near 100%. And then two minutes later, that character's dead. That's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. I like that. That was uh, that was fine. I don't think I've seen any of the sequels, to be honest with you. Oh man, I re- I reviewed sloppy. I think I reviewed all the other sequels with um, Katie Rotts on uh, Rotten Rantings, and man, those are some those are some gooey movies. <laughs> <laughs> nice, I love it. And Beastly Freaks, yes. Now, with along with the breach, okay, and and this is kind of what Doc was alluding to a moment ago with the other characters in the story, in the store, in the mist. The, the thing that even becomes more threatening than the breach even is the monsters among us, right? And we've, right. we've referred to this, Josh has already, but, you know, you either have characters inside who are metaphorically monstrous and actually more 
fearsome and ferocious than than the beastly freaks outside and they're only humans, right? Or you have someone inside who's infected <laughs> and they become a monster. And right. I, and I think that I mean those two things, the breach and the monster among us are are two of the most powerful elements of the siege narrative in, in terms of like relating to the monster. I love that. Right. And the, I mean, the thing that always gets me about um, the thing, you know, John Carpenter's the thing uh, is that the tension that was there prior to this thing showing up. Yeah. I mean, these are not people who liked spending time with each other. Um, <laughs> they were not happy to be there. They were already you know, pent up and they were starting to feel it. You know, you have that scene where, where Kurt Russell loses the chess game, pours his drink into the CPU. Yeah. You know, you, you have, um, the guy telling, um, uh, the other guy turn the radio down and he doesn't do it. One guy smoking marijuana right out in the open. All that happened prior to the monster showing up. So you already had this breakdown of these guys don't really like being around each other. You throw into the mix the fact that any one of them could be a killer, <laughs> and that's like as, as, as explosive a situation as you can get. And I think that's really why that movie works. I mean, you, yeah. you had to get to that scene where they had to prove to each other they're not who they say they are. And the only way they actually do finally fully prove it is by proving one of them is. You know, because everyone could have been just, well, that test doesn't work. That's not a good, t you know, until they finally proved that one of them was. That's the, that was it. And then nobody is fully trusting of anybody in that movie. Yes, well said. You nailed it right there. And that, you know, that's why the thing has a golden premise. I would I would call that a golden premise movie. That's, that's why it's why it's one of my one of my favorite horror movies. Me too. So, Jason, I know for me another genre that this crosses over with, and I'm curious where you stand on this because there's what I would call isolation horror. Uh, I know you're into like kind of survival horror as one of your you know favorite things, like an open water, oh yeah, kind of survival horror kind of situation. Um, there are movies that have elements of this kind of siege narrative that's that maybe actually don't fit. And I, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about some of those. One that instantly came to mind is uh, Frozen, the the movie <laughs> that you like, uh, Adam yeah. Green movie. And, they're, and in a way, they're trapped in this place and, you know, they don't know what to do and they want to get off, but they can't. And, and you know, and like from Dust Till Dawn, I also mentioned um, those kind of fit that, some of those criteria. Um, Alien maybe is another one like that. Um but I wouldn't consider them necessarily siege narratives, you know, um, but they are still kind of that isolation horror and it fits many of your criteria, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Yeah, I guess I um, I like your term isolation horror and I've heard that before. I guess I usually lump that into the whole survival horror subgenre, but but I like what you're saying and I'm, I'm well, totally with you. Survival horror does not also have a lot of siege narrative crossover yeah yeah i would agree with that as well i mean it, particularly when it's you know man versus beast right you know when when there's some kind of beastly freak involved but if it's like if it's like man or woman versus nature <laughs> right right you know 
the, the you know like the elements for example then like the gray that's not a siege narrative but it still has that kind of isolation and yeah. survival aspect to it yeah but the happening <laughs> the happening that's kind of a siege narrative and that's the perfect <laughs> example of uh the you know the monster not working because it's right <laughs> right that's a perfect example of that Okay, do you guys have anything else to, uh, about the monster before we move into question three? No, I think, I think oh, that's good stuff. Uh, okay, cool. All right, so... We nailed it, man. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, um, I want to talk about the common conventions associated with the survivalists or potential victims of the primary location. So, um, the first thing I want to say about this, and this is really interesting to me, I did not realize this until about 10 minutes before we started the podcast. There... In a siege narrative, there are, there are two establishments of the community. There's the initial community in the opening of the film where you you basically are introduced briefly to various characters. They're roughly sketched. They usually have different backgrounds and a lot of them are typecast. But you can kind of tell, I mean, they don't fit together perfectly as it is, you know. They may or may not be good friends, but for the most part, you can see the differences in the people. But then, once stuff gets real and it all goes down and they get lumped together, then you have a new community established. And um, I think that's one of the interesting like sociological aspects of the siege narrative, because you got people put in extreme circumstance to see what kind of new society they create under those circumstances. Are they going to combine to fight the common enemy or are they going to just fight themselves? I love it. <clears throat> Crazy, right? <clears throat> yeah. No, yeah, that's my that's my favorite thing about zombie movies in general is them, you know, they're kind of like a test of the anarchist theory. It's kind of saying like when there's no government, when there's no one around to kind of keep the peace, what's how are we going to treat each other? And I, and I love that idea and I love that um the the chance to kind of tease that theory out <laughs> in a fantasy situation, you know? Yeah, like Lord of the Flies, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But everything you're saying definitely applies to all these movies we're talking about. You know, I could really, you know, think of several instances of Night of the Living Dead and Tremors. Um, obviously, yeah, even Maximum Overdrive. And the mist, yeah. I mean, they all definitely fit those criteria very well, and and it's something that you know in a movie like Feast is really blatantly kind of put on Front Street there. But um, <laughs> but the best movies, I think, incorporate those different character um, personalities into the plot. You know, they actually have a reason for functioning the way they do. Yeah, yeah, and and I appreciate it when they again, organically function in the plot, whereas, and it's not a horror movie, but like Lady in the Water, for example, that was horrible how they figured into the plot, and it was like (laughs) the part of it, and I despise that, but anyway, so, go ahead, Doc. Yeah, I think we're going to have to do a show at some point, what happened to M. Night Shyamalan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Your hometown boy. Yeah. Right, yeah, he is. He is, and he's filmed all of his movies have been in in this area. It's going to be, you know, it's it's like you have four at the beginning that were, um, I mean, I'll say four that I think were excellent, and then mm-hmm. wow, <laughs> just a, mm-hmm. a real a real bad drop off after that. And Signs has some great siege elements in it, yes, as well. 
Absolutely. Yes, signs is uh, definitely. Yeah, and and I would say even though it's a thriller, the strongest in that is is the element of you know what we what we hear is scarier than what we see. I mean, they do some great things in the sound design of that film. It's pretty tremendous there. The basement scene is amazing. Yes, Uh exactly. Now, there are uh, questions asked a lot in the siege narrative among the survivalists. Like, for example, they they will ask, um, you know, they always try to figure out what's going on. There's usually some kind of shock associated with it. This stuff comes out of nowhere. It comes out of left field. And so they're disoriented and then they're trying to piece it together. What the heck is going on, right? And they float their theories. And so the three questions they ask is, um, you know, besides what's going on and all that jazz, is they they have to ask, are we going to make a run for it? How are we going to make a run for it? And when are we going to take off? So, I mean... The questions are a big part of it, and I don't know why, but I love hearing these discussions. I love the planning. I love to hear about the scenarios, the various options. I love the debates and the differences of opinion, the the um, divisions in the group. Usually a take-charge leader type arises and starts you know, barking orders, and mm-hmm. oftentimes there will be a, like a secondary leader who kind of challenges for the alpha male or female position. And, um, <laughs> and I just, that, that whole, all those social interactions are just super fascinating to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll agree. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that, I think that's what, that's what keeps it interesting. If you think about it, mm-hmm. you know, like the discussions of what are we going to do and okay, who's going to, who's going to be the, the one who's brave enough to, to do this and, um, you know, go out or do what needs to be done. You know, it's a very interesting Actually, Siege movie, um, a, a slightly uh, different type of spin on it is uh, Bait. You know, oh, the movie yeah. where they're, they're, they're in the supermarket and they're in there with the sharks, but the sharks are obviously in the water and they're on top of the shelves. Yeah, you're not talking about the Jamie Foxx movie. You're talking no. about the... Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm, just... I'm talking about the Australian <laughs> film, you know, the tsunami comes in and, and moves these two great whites into a supermarket. You know, swimming mm-hmm. around the shelves and every uh, and everybody's standing on top of the shelves. They're trying to figure out, okay, who's going to get us out of here? How who's going to go down and you know open this? Who's going to? It, it's sort of the same thing. Yeah, and it, it's a group that survived. You have like two of the survivors, or one is one is a cop and the other one is a thief. He was picking up, mm. just like Sharknado. But they didn't have yeah. Ian Zeering and Bait, so <laughs> right. They were in a lot of trouble. So is right. bait is bait worthwhile? I haven't seen bait. Is it good? Bait is one of you know. I enjoyed. I did enjoy bait. I think it's you know it, it it's. I wouldn't say it's. Uh, I mean, the movies we're discussing tonight, I think, are, are better examples, and I think probably ultimately better movies. But as far as like the whole recent shark, uh, I guess craze com- coming out with films, it's actually a, a good one because it does have some genuine tension to it. Right. You could do um, worse, you know, like like uh, like Sharknado, <laughs> Sharknado, <laughs> for example. But no, bait. Uh, I, I had fun. I had fun with bait, and I think, uh, but it does sort of fit into the into the narrative, just with a with a slightly different twist, like like. Um, you know, from dusk till dawn, the creatures are in there with them. Nice. I like that. 
I I actually really do appreciate it when the creatures are inside. I mean, that reminds me of um oh man, what's that alien movie? It's like called Storage One O Nine or something. Yeah, it's got PS twenty one. No, I'll, I'll find it here in a second. But yeah, that's kind of the scenario there. Like for people who like these kind of movies, yeah, Storage Twenty Four is what it's called. Okay. You know, they end up getting locked inside um, a storage facility with you know an alien beastly mm-hmm. freak. So that's pretty interesting. Now, now, would you say that um, for C's narrative that does it have to be multiple creatures coming after them? No, Cujo's a siege narrative. Cujo's know. a siege narrative. Okay, because mm-hmm. you could look at so, several... Um, what is the one I'm thinking of? Well, no, it might be more elements of the movie as opposed to the whole movie in general. Um, you know, I was thinking like a, a, like a uh, the slasher type thing, like, a, like Leslie Vernon just leaped into mind. But you know what? That's more of a specific point in the movie mm. than it is the whole movie. I think well, a lot about, of slashers have that element. A lot of them say. do. A lot of them do. Yeah. But it's not like it's, it's not the whole film is the siege. It's right. like elements of it uh, scattered throughout, which I guess you get in a lot of different movies. Yeah. You guys you is- talk about a generic cabin in the woods. That's kind of a, it's kind of a thing, you know. Right. You you guys kind of just blew my mind, actually, because, yeah, as you think about it, um, slashers are a siege narrative where the monsters are just really slick at the breach. Right. Yeah, and they're just uh, breaching hmm. all the time, right and left. So, yep. great job, you guys. I, I hadn't realized that before, but that's cool. And um, plays on plays on those elements, and I think that's what, what makes them effective. You know, especially something in the, like Halloween, you never know where Michael Myers is. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Now, um, by the way, he's behind you, but yeah, normally. And, uh, <laughs> so, but sometimes you, he's just looking, sometimes he's just watching you. He doesn't always. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, here here's something that happens in a siege narrative that I don't always love. I find this frustrating. Um, but when, anytime you have like a, an ensemble type of cast in a movie or a TV show, this typically occurs and Roger Ebert refers to it as the idiot plot. And that's where part of the group knows important information and other parts of the group don't know that information. Probably the, the most heinous offender of the idiot plot, like the most maddening one for me was the TV show Lost. It's like, why don't you freaking guys communicate so you can figure out what you should really do instead of this because what usually happens is revelations come out in the midst of things and you have these big bombshells and that causes even more tension in the group so like the idiot plotting is definitely part of a siege narrative well i've got to theorize that it only counts as an idiot plot if there's not a good reason the characters aren't talking with each other okay if it's just like it doesn't make because i think it's actually really fun when that happens, it is frustrating, but again, but really fun if there are legitimate reasons those characters wouldn't interact. For instance, again, not horror, Ellie Confidential. You know, there's <laughs> this great thing with Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe and Kevin Spacey that if the three of them would just have a conversation, they would yes. be able to unravel the entire mystery. Right. <laughs> but there are reasons these guys all hate each other. And so that's never going to happen, you know. I love that example. Yeah, you're exactly right. I give that to you. But typically when you find an offending idiot plot, it's like, 
why don't you just tell him? Like, what kills me is when, like, somebody's attacked by a giant gorilla or something. Just for example, this is made up. And then they get back with the group, and it's not like, hey, guys, I was just attacked by a giant gorilla. You know, like, they, they don't say that. Like, they don't just spit it out, like, what Or happened? they're easily shut up. Like, they want to tell everyone, but everyone's like, come on, we're late for dinner. And then they don't say anything. <laughs> right, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that makes me nuts. I hate that. Now, yeah. let's talk about the inner conflicts um, between the group members. Now, they usually have to work together. I mean, that that's part of it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and initially, there's like some kind of a pep talk given. Usually the, the pseudo leader, you know, the person who's emerging as the leader, will give, will give these discordant people a little bit of a pep talk. And it's like, we have to work together. But then... You know, it, it heats up, there are arguments, and then violence, and then sometimes it actually culminates into murder amid the group, and that happens in a couple of these siege narratives that we're right. talking about tonight. So again, um, I love it that zombies in Night of the Living Dead, for example, zombies aren't the only monsters, you know, it, there's a potential for monstrosity in all the people, too. Yeah. yeah um, Night I, of the Living think- Dead really gives us a great starting place for this development throughout horror i mean i think that's again like one of my favorite things mm-hmm. how are they going to treat each other and i just find that so fascinating mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and along these lines you know there is almost always at least in smart films and and smart i mean <laughs> a film that has some kind of thought into the screenplay there's usually some type of morality debate and in like um the mist for example um you know there's there's a debate over humanity and what people will do when there aren't rules. I mean, they usually come down to some kind of a debate. And I love that, especially when it comes to like executing justice and this guy's trouble. This guy almost got us killed. You know, should we tie him up? Should we execute him? You know, like I love it when there's a morality debate. Yeah, absolutely. That's another, another big part of it. And there are times when you're frustrated where you're like, just, just, you know, smack her. And I think you know what movie I'm talking about <laughs> right. at this point, you know? Right, right. Just, just, just hit her over the head with a club. Just do something because to do nothing is 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 just going to allow the situation to worsen. I'm sorry to give another non-horror example, but I was just being forced to watch Prison Break season four with my wife the other night. And there was actually a great example of this type of scene where um, a Bible salesman comes to the door and inside you have a hostage situation. And so he, uh, you know, the guy's trying to decide if he should let this guy in or or not. And, uh, you know, because he has these hostages inside and due to the way the guy's acting, he, you know, he realizes, oh, this guy must be, here to get me. He must be one of the bad guys. So he punches the guy in the face, knocks him unconscious, ties him to a chair, and he's going to execute him. And as he's going to execute him, he starts reciting a passage of scripture and the guy is able to finish it. And so he immediately breaks down and he, he realizes, oh, this guy really is a Bible salesman. I've just beaten this guy near to death and I was about to kill him. (laughs) And here he was a Bible salesman. So he cuts the guy loose and then, of course, the guy does end up being an agent and, and beats him up and calls <laughs> wow. him away. So I thought that was a cool <laughs> wow. version of that scene. That's pretty good. <laughs> that is nice. It's like, I'll buy two Bibles. Sorry, I hit you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Um, <clears throat> okay, a couple more elements and we'll keep on cruising here. 
there are, you know, in almost every single, and this has been mentioned, but almost every single siege narrative, there's like an assessing and an accounting of resources, particularly survival supplies like guns and food and fire and all that stuff. Also, and this is a big one, especially for zombie apocalypse films, um, there is a, a common goal to get to some promised land or some safe sheltered destination. There is a place that we think is safe, that if we can only get to there, we'll be okay. There's always that, almost always. And New Eden. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. And I also like how there's a lot of second guessing, like, there are doubts in, in siege narratives among the community of people. I mean, they always have doubts about what to do because everything they try to do is risky and right. potentially life-threatening. And as they try various things, they lose people along the way. And so those doubts just get more and more intense. I think that's effective. And one last little character beat that they throw in. When a movie doesn't have this, I, I notice it. Um, is people who want to call and check on their families. I mean, a lot of times you'll have a siege narrative situation and something that looks like it's heading post-apocalyptic. And so, you know, there are problems everywhere. And so people are starting to wonder, okay, are my family, is my family okay? I want to check on my parents or whatever. And that's what, uh, one of the great scenes of 28 Days Later, which I love, is, is, is that kind of thing where he wants to check uh-huh. on his parents. And it's just tremendous. So, anything else on the um, the community of survivors in a siege narrative? I think a lot of times they, um, almost like I was saying earlier with with tremors, they fall into a specific category, and you find yourself sort of picking out who's going to live, who's going to die. Yes, and it doesn't always work out that way. You know, sometimes. Um, you know, you get what happened at Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you get what's going on in, in Tremors, where the the characters you were sure were not going to make it, um, you know, make it a lot further than you thought they were going to. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's that's kind of interesting. I like it when the, when they don't make it predictable. There's always going to be one or two characters that I think you can kind of pick out. Okay, yeah. well, this one's done. Uh, it's just really a matter of time. Right. Um, but still, when, when you, when you, something about, you know, when, when they're all together and, and they're, and they're, and they start interacting with each other, even that can change sometimes. Mm-hmm. No, and I, and that's yeah. one of the things I like about it. I like the, the siege, the siege is almost like in a way in some movies, it's almost secondary at times to what's going on inside. Absolutely. That's absolutely my favorite thing that happens in these movies. I mean, I just want to, I just want to see the human whose greed or cowardice is pushing them to be more dangerous than, than the bigger threat. And so Mm -hmm. that's, that's when, when they can really effectively pull that off. That's when I feel like these movies are really firing on all cylinders. Which is yep. why I can't believe you don't appreciate High Lane more than you do. <laughs> because <laughs> that that goes into some treacherous, treacherous places in that regard. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, we talk about, um, you know, 
going and trying to find their family. I feel like that's such a natural inclination. We were talking about this on Movie Podcast Weekly. I can't remember if it was when we were reviewing a Goodbye World, which in itself is kind of a siege narrative mm-hmm. um, about the end of the world, not a horror movie, um, or Godzilla. But I remember Carl brought up, oh, it's so fake in movies when you can't convince these characters not to go check on their families. I'm like, dude, that would be the first thing I would do oh, if, I was, if I was out there. That would be if, the only thing I would care about. Away, if you were locked away from your family, the only thing you're thinking of is what danger are they in right now? And right. I got to get to them because yeah. they might not think to do this. They might not, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think anybody would be able to convince me not to go. Right. Which is a great, check on my family. Another great aspect of the mist, because there's that situation. The father and the son are separated from the mother of the family. Right. That's powerful. Yeah. Right, and I think what's, better, what's, yeah. the, the ending of that movie, which we obviously won't go into, is, is incredibly powerful. Not just for what the father does, but for what he sees go past him. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, where, where he made a decision to not do something, someone else made a decision to do something. Yes. Yeah. That's it incredible. was almost like just everything coming down on him at once. <laughs> yeah, it's powerful. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Wow. What in the dickens is going on around here? A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Now, who was driving it? I don't know. Curtis! It's coming after us! It was my first picture as a director. And you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. What is going on? I don't know! I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. You want a war? You got one. I just want to get the hell out of here. So come and spend some time with me and my friends at the Dixie Boy. Spend some time in the dark. Please don't let me in the dark. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. You're going to get us in an awful lot of trouble, man. We already in trouble. Maximum terror. Jesus coming in here. Maximum King. Maybe tomorrow will be our world again. Dino De Laurentiis presents Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. Well, should we rate these four films? Because I, I realize, listeners, if you're hopefully no one's feeling frustrated as they listen to us because you know, we didn't do our typical in-depth review of each movie outright, you know, because for one, we figured that probably you're very familiar with all these films, but we will give just final thoughts and, and ratings on it. So starting with Night of the Living Dead, 1968, I just wanted to tell you guys, I was so proud of myself watching this movie because I was taking such copious notes and paying attention so well, I actually figured out all by myself that the night that this occurs on was Sunday, April 30th, 1967. And it goes, you know, overnight to May 1st. 
And I was so proud of myself, you guys. And then I saw in the IMDb trivia, they just put that in there right in the trivia. <laughs> but I was like even doubly proud because it's like, yep, I was right about that. Because they, they leave you enough clues that you can research it and figure out when that actually occurs. So that's kind of cool to me. That's really cool. But anyway, Night of the Living Dead is a, a must-see for any horror fan. It is currently streaming on Netflix Watch Instantly. But for me, this is an 8 out of 10 and I say buy it for sure. What do you say, Wolfman? Well, I did want to say um, I noticed as I was wondering if we'd actually rated this film on the podcast before. I noticed that in episode 12, we did our top five scariest horror movies. And um, all three of us listed Night of the Living Dead in our honorable mentions. So mm-hmm. it's a movie that still stands up. Um, you know, it's not the best made film in terms of the production values, you know, but, um, but it's still very effective in the storytelling. And so I think you have to give it credit for that, even though obviously there's some major budgetary constraints in this film. Um, you know, there were other, you know, your first instinct is think, well, it was just the time. Well, no, there were some pretty incredible films being made at that time. Um, it's, I think it's just the budget, but, um, Mm -hmm. but he still knew how to tell the story and um, and I think it's a really good story, and I think he laid some groundwork for a lot of horror to come with this film. And I think it's still effective. Like we said, it, it's still scary. So um, this is a movie I like a lot. I, I you know, I'm I'm a big zombie fan, and and this is where it all begins for me. So um, you know, I'd give Night of the Living Dead a uh, an eight, and I think it's a must own for any. Any zombie fan for sure. Okay, excellent. Eight, and Josh says, must buy it. And what do you say, Dr. Shock? Um, well, for me, this is a, a movie um, that had a profound effect on me the first time I saw it. Uh, like I said, there was a slow buildup of dread until it gets to a point uh, where something goes very wrong at a gas pump. And to see what happens, the, um, the, you know, the, the outcome of that <laughs> was very disturbing for me the first time I saw this movie. Oh, I mean, yeah. it, it, uh, that was something that actually, you know, had kept me up and had me, I mean, I was considerably younger when I saw it too, but had me like really just put, you know, turning it over and over in my head. Um, honestly, I, this is on my list. I give it a 10. All right, it's, you know, I, I and I will agree it's not it's not necessarily the best made movie, uh, you know. But th- there's something about that grittiness, almost the same as like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, that 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 raw edge to it that I think only makes it only makes it better and makes it more effective. Yeah, or like the year it came out, Bonnie and Clyde. It kind of has that same kind of urgency, right? Um, to it, you know. Hmm. Well, um, in, in response to what you said about how that affected you in that scene in particular, when Roger Ebert first saw this in 1969, he, he didn't technically review it, but he wrote like an audience reaction of his experience. And I just, if you guys don't mind, I want to quote from that here because it's, it's extremely awesome. I think any horror fan would be proud of this, especially considering the way Roger Ebert typically felt about horror movies. Here we go, quote, The movie had stopped being delightfully scary about halfway through and had become unexpectedly terrifying. 
There was a little girl across the aisle from me, maybe nine years old, who was sitting very still in her seat and crying. I don't think oh my the, gosh. I don't think the younger kids really knew what hit them. They were used to going to movies, sure, and they'd seen some horror movies before, sure, but this was something else. This was ghouls eating people up, and you could actually see what they were eating. This was little girls killing their mothers. This was being set on fire. Worst of all, even... Okay, well, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> but he talks about the outcome at the ending. <laughs> I felt real terror in that neighborhood theater last Saturday afternoon. I saw kids who had no resources they could draw upon to protect themselves from the dread and fear they felt. Wow. So that's the power. That's quite a review, actually. That is quite a review. That's that's excellent. Yeah. Um, you know, it reminds me, we reviewed the uh, documentary um, Birth of the Living Dead. And, you yes. know, obviously the scene we didn't love was all those reoccurring scenes of the teacher in the classroom talking to his students. But it it does remind me that, yeah, that film is still effective, especially on, you know, young people can have that um, impact on you if you haven't seen a lot of horror. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's move into our um, ratings for uh, Maximum Overdrive from 1986. This is, to date, the only Stephen King movie that was directed by Stephen King. And, um, (laughs) oh boy. Well, here's a little interesting tidbit. The movie opens on June 19th, 1987, within the film itself. Uh And... That is exactly 27 years ago yesterday as we released this episode. That's kind of cool. I don't know why I like stuff like that. Um, Something about this film that annoyed me very, very much was they did this loud, psycho, um, giant, giant, giant noise every time something bad happens. Not every time, but usually when there was attack, they would do it. And I actually pulled a little clip of it here so you guys can hear it for yourself. (laughs) Listen how annoying this is. Okay, now if you you compare that to the real thing, which was like this. There's no comparison, right? I mean, it's so tacky and cheesy. And that is just a perfect example of how this movie fails. And in fact, um, you know, you I'll play the trailer somewhere in this episode for you. And it's kind of embarrassing because Stephen King narrates the trailer. And if you watch it on YouTube, it's hilarious. But but he's he says some things in it that are a little bit arrogant, I guess. Like, you know, if you want to do a Stephen King film, you got to do it. If you want to do it right, do it yourself and all that stuff. Um, and it's just really unfortunate because this this movie just is a total bomb. And like, for example, yeah. you have a bathroom scene where a guy's in the bathroom using the restroom and another guy's in there talking to him. And during that conversation, they have lots and lots of sound effects. Meanwhile, you know, you have that kind of thing in this movie. You have characters who say lines like, quote, it's not a good idea. It's like Neville Chamberlain giving in to the Nazis. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) how many people would understand you know, what that means in that reference. And, you know, just that contrast of the kind of things they have in this movie. And then, and this is a, this is a minor spoiler, but trust me, I, I do not feel hesitant to tell, to tell you guys this, okay? So, at the very end of the movie, they wrap up the film with a title card. 
meaning like they give the actual ending in a title card yeah. and, it, and yeah. it reads two days after a large ufo <laughs> was destroyed in space by a russian quote-unquote weather satellite which happened to be equipped with a laser cannon and class 4 nuclear missiles approximately six days later the earth passed beyond the tail of Rhea M, exactly as predicted. And by the way, that's the comet that was causing these trucks to, you know, and, and all the machinery to misbehave. Yeah. Or, or apparently, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was the UFO. Right, yeah. exactly. And, and it says the survivors of the Dixie Boy are still survivors. <laughs> and, um, that's pl- I mean, the part, part of that is obviously playing on the whole, when this movie came out, the whole Cold War was still very strong, and the, the yes. distrust of the Russians that that they're actually putting nukes in space and things like that, uh, you know. So that's playing into that in a way. Obviously, um, not clumsily. I'll, I'll admit, very clumsily. But but Doc, what this means is because I sense that you're defending it a little bit. But what that actually means is that the true enemy in this movie, the real um, antagonist or the monster. We don't even see that monster or the fight. <laughs> like, no, I, I'll agree. It's a bit of a cop out. Yeah, it's oh, you know, horrible. it's a cop out. They they should have. I think it would have been better if they just sort of left this sort of mysterious thing in the comet tail or whatever. Right, I agree. You no, know, I I think that would have been that would have been better. I don't think we needed that at the end. Yeah. So, and one last kick to the chops of this movie. I mean, some eighties movie well many 80s movies in fact are cheesy and campy and they actually have a charm and they're special that way but this is just plain bad for me this is a 3.5 out of 10 it's in a void it's not even so bad it's good but i will say it's currently streaming on netflix watch instantly if you dare so (laughs) what do you say dr shock you know i'm i'm gonna be a little bit kinder to it than that but not much um, it, it, I'm going to commit it. I'm going to commit it a five. Okay. I'm saying it's, 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 I think it has enough of that sort of, uh, eighties appeal that, that people who like those movies might, might enjoy it. I'm not going to say it's a good horror movie. It's not, I'm not even going to say it's a, it's, it's a smart movie. It's not, I mean, you, it really is just not a great premise, you know, that <laughs> right. it, it just doesn't really work at that level either but i kind of i i didn't i didn't i didn't hate it i didn't like i wasn't rolling my eyes at it i I was able to go along with it you know for for the most part but uh realizing at the time that it was kind of goofy um (laughs) and also i mean you know that you had that what i thought was really interesting the character of that annoying wife uh, who just yeah. wouldn't be quiet? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the voice of Lisa Simpson. Yes, <laughs> and I had, I had I shut my eyes and I could actually hear Lisa Simpson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in this movie because I think she's the one voice in that show who's um, of the people who provide voices for the Simpsons who's not actually disguising her voice. Mm-hmm. She's just like that's her. Right. Well, you the know, actress and, who plays Marge is the same way, actually. And Marge is the same way. A little bit of a discount, but you know, I mean, you, you could tell that that's, yeah, Julie Cavner. You def- you're right. You're right. That You could tell that's her. Um, but I think Yeardley Smith is the only one. That's, she's the only one who does one voice in the show, too. But yeah. anyway, um, then, uh, and something about Emilio Estevez at that time, too. You know, like, I was a big fan of Repo Man. Yeah. You know, I really liked that movie, too. Uh, and I think he made this very close to the time he made Repo Man. 
You know, so he had that whole, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say James Dean thing going, but, you know, he had that, th- like, almost like uh, like his father had in Badlands. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that sort of edge to him. That's true. Um, but still, I... I, I <laughs> Giving it a five, it's it's still hard for me to even call it call it a rental. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna, uh, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna come up with a new category. I'm gonna call it a cautionary rental. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. What do you think Have of that, you, Josh? Caution- do you guys remember Herman's Head by any chance? No, I've heard TV- of it, but I don't think I've ever. It was a TV show in the in the early '90s, basically. Yardley Smith was in it, but. It had like the different parts of this guy's brain um, being played. I think it was Artie Lang actually, maybe it was the lead, but um, playing out in his head like different aspects of his personality. Yeah, with, like you've just fired off a few synapses up here because I'm I'm yeah. starting to <laughs> like recall that. I don't know that I've ever really sat down and watched it. I really I, liked that when it was. I'm on. remembering. I, I'm remembering something about that. My other favorite role of hers is she's the checkout girl in uh, the beginning of City Slickers that Daniel Stern's having an affair with. But <laughs> anyway, um, so Maximum Overdrive. Yeah, I I love Stephen King. Obviously, you know one of the best gifts to horror of all time. Um, I love Emilio Estevez and Pat Hingle and uh, Frankie Faison, but this is kind of a train wreck. Um, you're making fun of the music. I love the fact that ACDC's Who Made Who is the soundtrack to this movie. I think it's all. Awesome. I think that's awesome. That's cool. And I loved, I loved the fact that they ended the movie with um, You Shook Me All Night Long. Yes. One of the greatest <laughs> rock and roll songs ever. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, you know, I'm happy for Stephen King that he got to make his own movie. And, you know, after having problems with other previous adaptations and he got his favorite band to do the soundtrack. And But it's hopefully was a lesson to him. <laughs> to not do it anymore because uh, <laughs> it's pretty rough. And yeah, I, I would say this movie's a four. Um, it's still fun to watch. Like Doc said, I think if you like bad 80s horror movies as much as I do, um, you'll enjoy sitting down and watching it. But, it, you know, it's just a rental. You don't, it's not worth buying. Uh-huh. For sure. Okay. So Wolfman Josh gives it a four and says it's a rental, and Doc Shock gives it a five and says it's a cautionary rental. Yeah. I, and I, I, did you mention it's already, it's streaming on Netflix? <clears throat> yes. Yeah. It's streaming on Netflix right now. Absolutely. Okay. And let's move into uh, Tremors from 1990. And um, I just. You know, people should know if you haven't seen this before, it's a beastly freak flick, but it's definitely a comedy horror. It's a fun type movie. It's very light, but um, the beast is quite cool. There's tons of comedy and stuff like that, but um, it's an interesting twist on the siege narrative. So if you like siege narratives and the stuff we've been talking about tonight, this is a definite must see. And uh, for me, it's a seven out of 10 and I give it a strong rental. What do you say, uh, Wolfman? I mean, I think in terms of horror, it's it's pretty light um, on straight-ahead horror, but it is scary, and it's very effective. Um, it kind of, to me, almost has more of an adventure feel to it. But it, yeah, it's, it's one of the horror comedies that I feel like really works. The combination of the scares and the laughs are just perfect. A lot of that's attributed to the cast, I think. Mm. Kevin Bacon, particularly, I just think is so great in this, and Fred Ward. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, the monsters are great. This is one of the best 
monsters, I think, of, of any of the films we're talking about tonight. And really, I, I would say if I had to pick one movie that works on its own term, you know, it's hard to say. I, I, you know, I can't say this is better than Night of the Living Dead because of the classic and important place that movie plays in cinema history. But in terms of working on its own terms, this is the best of the films we're talking about tonight, in my opinion. Um, I give it a nine, and uh, I think it's an absolute must-own for me. So. Wow. Okay. Josh says nine, must-own. And what do you say, Dr. Shock? I'm going to come in right with him. I'm going to say a nine. I think this is one that, that you have to own. It's, it's so much fun. It, the rewatchability on this is very high. Uh, yeah, and I, I'll agree. I think Kevin Bacon does an excellent job in this movie. I like the whole cast. And I, I like I said, I really like Michael Gross as well. You oh, know, yeah, it was yeah. really a, just a different role for him. I mean, you know, when he was making this, it was, um, very close. I think it might've even still been, I don't know if family times was still on the air was, at the time, but it was right after that ended, right after that ended. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he had played a, an extremely, um, you know, a liberal character in that. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah. next hippie, hippie dude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to go from that to this, to this, uh, <laughs> this, this gun toting survivalist. Yes. And, and to do it as well as he did, I think was, was pretty impressive. Yeah. You know, so I, I like the whole cast in this, in this movie. Um, you know, I've worked with Robert Jane, the kid that plays Melvin. I should have, uh, tried to get in touch with him and we could have done a, f- a tremors behind the scenes interview with him. Oh, that would have been, that. that would have been great because mm. you know what? I liked, I liked the role he, that that kid played in it too. You yeah. know, that even that all <laughs> yeah. the adults might've had their differences with each other, but yet they all kind of hated him, not hated him, <laughs> right. but he annoyed the hell out of all of them. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that kid, it was, it was like the one thing that they could all sort of agree on that this kid was a pain in the neck. <laughs> yes. um, and I liked that about it too. So yeah, it's it's a nine. I think this is one you 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 have to own. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you guys like it so much. So yeah, we're strong. Fun we're pretty strong. Incredible monsters. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, and then let's move into our reviews of the Mist from 2007. Um, the first thing I'll say about this: this has a a three different people, three different cast members of The Walking Dead in it. And it's interesting because um, their characters in this, what'd you say? I hadn't even thought of that. That's mm-hmm. interesting. And their characters in this movie are um, pretty similar, actually, to their characters and some of their, their character beats in The Walking Dead. So it made me wonder if Frank Darabont just didn't say, oh, okay, they're going to be perfect for this and that and whatever. But right. I, I do want to tell people there is a two-disc set this when you buy the dvd like a special edition set or whatever and they have a black and white version it is better it sells it better like um you know the the effects in this movie are the passable but the the beastly freaks kind of look like it's not quite the muppet show but they're a little bit puppety i mean (laughs) they move like the creatures in it move fairly well but they just still look like some kind of like rubber puppet thing and um if you watch the black and white version it's actually sells it a lot better so i just wanted to tell you that so i had to take off a point for the creature effects and then thomas jane i like him he he's good in his role except when he has to really bring the emotion and he he cannot sell it he has to do some like seriously like heavy dramatic moments in this movie 
and he doesn't even come close to picking him up. So I had to take a whole point off for that. So for me, The Mist, I still love this movie. It's one of my favorite siege narratives. It's an 8 out of 10, and I say buy it. And um, and much like, I will say this too, much like Night of the Living Dead, they do. I'm not saying they end the same way, but those movies end the way I feel like horror movies should end, and I'll just leave it at that. So um, what do you say, Dr. Shock? Uh, I'm going to give it a 7. I mean, it, it, it is, it's, it's an excellent, I've liked it. I mean, I think it's an excellent siege narrative as well. Uh, has some very tense moments. It has the whole, um, you know, it, 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 it's dangerous to go out. And then after a while, it's dangerous to stay. I like that part about it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that always kind of bothered me is when they, when he brings the neighbor over to tell him. Mm-hmm. The, the neighbor's reaction just seemed way too severe. Oh. You know, I mean, not believing is one thing, but when you have four people standing there completely straight-faced, yeah, yeah, <laughs> to, to think they're trying to play a joke on you, right? And then even say, "Come on back, we'll show you," and then refusing to do that, <laughs> it just seemed it just seemed far too confrontational, even more confrontational than I would have thought would have been. It. I can't think of anybody who would have reacted, actually reacted that way. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. You know, and and I think you get a, a few characters in this that eh, sometimes they're a little they're a little quick to jump. You know, um, even when they're in the back and they're and they're opening up that that door and the and the kids going to go out and the one guy's like, "Hey, you know, you might think you're from New York and you got all this." You know, it just seemed like in those instances, they're just a little bit too quick to to, to react that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it does play out better as as it goes on. Um, so yeah, I, I'd I'd say a seven, and I'd say it's a I'd call this one I call it a high priority rental if you haven't seen this one mm-hmm. for sure. And I, I haven't seen it in black and white. Now I'm interested too because I think I do have the two disc set. Yeah, yeah, pretty much it's the only way to go. I think, but. I mean, you can watch it in color, but it's better in black and white. Mm-hmm. What do you say, Wolfman? Well, I agree with a lot of what you guys have said. Um, again, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Stephen King and and Frank Darabont. I love that there's a little reference to Drew Struzan at the beginning of this with the Dark Tower poster that he's painting. Um, mm-hmm. mm. Drew Struzan's one of the coolest movie poster artists of all time and for the thing alone, if nothing else, but, if not um, the coolest, right? I mean, probably the coolest. Thing, yeah. Right? Yeah. So I, I love that there's such a nice homage to him, uh, given in this film. And, um, I, I will say, I think this is a Frank Darabont's work. I think this is probably other than the majestic, which I think is terrible. This is probably <laughs> his second worst movie. Um, but, you know, I, I, I still enjoy it. There are a lot of aspects I like about it. Um, I think you've already touched on the worst, I think, is the monsters. I just don't like the monsters in this movie. I think they had some promise at the beginning. Um, and it's one of those cases of the more I see it, the less scared I am of it. And as Jason said, I think for that reason, the black and white version is a lot more effective. I think it's more effective overall. It adds a, a darkness to the movie that um, the color version 
just doesn't have uh, mm-hmm. for me. But I love the cast. I think the reason to see this is the cast and the siege elements are very strong. So it's fun for that reason. I would probably... I'm on the fence on this one, of what I want to give it. Uh, probably would give it a seven. I'd like Doc and, and uh, you know, I own it. Um, so, I, you know, I can recommend buying it, but probably my overall recommendation is, is a rental. Okay. A rental on the mist. All right. It's funny how how much you two have lined up on your ratings tonight. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> you really you really have lined up. <laughs> I was gonna go lower, but you know, I just I don't know. I I know it's a beloved film, and it and it does deserve um, the love it gets. But the, for me, the monsters really knock it down a huge amount for me. Well, it it deserves the love j- just for its boldness. You know. Yeah. So pretty brazen film reports from witnesses to the effect that people who acted as though they were kind of trance were killing and eating their victims prompted authorities to examine the bodies of some of the victims medical authorities in cumberland have concluded that in all cases the killers are eating the flesh of the people they murdered okay so as we wrap up here we're gonna we promise to give you guys um throw out a few other horror siege narratives and I'm super bummed because I actually, I was keeping over the past probably five years, <laughs> I've been keeping a giant list of these somewhere <laughs> and I couldn't, somewhere. yeah, I couldn't find it and I'm super mad at myself, <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll just throw out the ones I have and I know we've mentioned a lot tonight. Um, So in addition to Night of the Living Dead, Tremors, Maximum Overdrive, and The Mist, there's also The Birds. Um, I had that one, yep. From Dusk right. Till Dawn, of course, which is mm-hmm. um, 30 Days of Night, one of the best for me. Right. Dog Soldiers, actually. Dog Soldiers is a good one. That's right. I didn't think about that one. Still trying to revisit that. I haven't done it. And shout out there on Dog Soldiers to my good friend, um, Deadbox Mike, who loves that film. And yeah, then, that's a good one. And then Jeepers Creepers 2 has some siege narrative yeah. in it there with the yeah, school bus. very good. Pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Best Siege narrative of all time for me, Cujo. Love that movie. And then Dawn of the Dead, the original and the remake, of course. And then Signs, which is a thriller. That was um, one that's a good Siege narrative. What do you have, Doc? Well, actually, I had a lot of the ones you mentioned. Um, The only one I have that you did not mention, and I just thought about it because it's another one where they're sort of holed up in a store, is an independent movie called Splinter. Oh yeah, that's one of my favorite. Mm. I love that one. Okay, yes. yeah, that and that one did just because I was thinking, you know, with it's sort of this uh, along the same lines of the mist to a degree. Mm-hmm. You know, again, people together who would not normally be together, and they're in the in a store, and then there's something outside, and uh, I really like that. I mean, that just the 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 creature itself is just so innovative. Cool. Yeah, that was my very first pick for the weekly horror movie podcast. That was the first one I wanted to review on there. So if you guys want to hear an in-depth review of that, Splinter, it's on episode one. You know. And you know what? Just to, just to, well, just because it's, it's, it's uh, been a topic recently, I did even come up with a, uh, a few that are in other genres. Okay. And I'll just throw them out. We're not going to review them. We're not going to spend any time on them or anything. Okay. But in action, you have Assault on Precinct 13, mm-hmm. another John Carpenter movie. Uh, which leads right to the Western, which would be Rio Bravo, seeing as um, John Carpenter oh, said two movies it. that that, aff- that influenced Assault on Precinct 13 were Rio Bravo and Night of the Living Dead. 
Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, Rio Bravo is a great one with uh, John Wayne, Dean Martin, and um, and Ricky. Ricky, what was it? Um, oh, Ricky Nelson. One of my all-time favorite movies. Awesome. Yeah. It was going to be Elvis Presley. They offered it to him, but Colonel Tom Parker turned it down. Um, and I'm kind of glad he did, actually, in a way. Uh, comedy, you have the recent movie, This is the End. <laughs> uh, family, Home Alone. Nice. Uh, sci-fi, I had, did have signs here, but also Aliens. You know, the second Aliens, yep. I, uh, I think the Alien sequel is, is a very good siege narrative in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the Omega Man, which could also lead you into I Am Legend and so forth. I think they have, they have aspects of it anyway. Uh, and then I even have a war movie, Black Hawk Down. Oh, that's a tremendous film. Okay. Awesome. So Good anyway, picks. I just thought I'd throw those out there. No, thank you for doing that. Thank you. What do you have, Wolfman? Well, you know, we've talked about so many of them. Uh, there aren't too many uh, that we haven't discussed yet. I did think, you know, when I when I brought up 30 Days of Night during our discussion, I was really only thinking of that scene in the attic, but, you know, there's obviously the scene in the grocery store and the scene in the at the jail cell, and really, you could make the argument that the entire town is kind of yeah. where this siege is taking right. place. So I think that's, that's a really interesting thing about... Um, that movie, but um, in recent years, my favorite um, siege narratives have been uh, Pontypool, um, You're Next, we've talked about The Purge. I like those kind of uh, situations a great deal. But yeah, my favorites of all time have got definitely got to be the two Dawn of the Dead movies and The Thing, um, my absolute favorite. So Awesome. It was yeah, a great-, great. It's a fun, fun subgenre for sure. And obviously, listeners, um, this is not an exhaustive list. And in fact, if you think of other siege narratives, especially horror scenes narratives, like put them in the show notes. I'd love to build up that list again that I've lost. <laughs> so, that'd be great. All right, guys. Well, as the we- birds is especially a good one, though. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you th- if you think about it, I mean, what what I mean, not just the the, the animals. Outside. There's there's a movie where you never find out why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. And because Hitchcock and, and, the, and the screenwriter sort of discussed that, they said, do we have to come up with a reason here? And they both just kind of said, no, I don't think we really do. You know, it, it's, it's going to make it more interesting to keep it, um, uh, you know, to, to not know what's going on here. I mean, obviously, it's based on, on, an, on an actual story that Hitchcock read about in a newspaper. Uh, it happened, I think it was in Capitola, California, where these birds attacked the town. <laughs> and um, then he remembered Daphne du Maurier had written a book about it, and that was when he sort of, you know, started to make the movie. But the sound in that movie is what really gets you. Just, just all of the the noise when those things are attacking. That that's all you hear. The characters are talking to each other. You don't hear them. Mm-hmm. A, a lamp falls over. You don't hear that. The only thing you hear is is the noise from outside. With with the th- these thousands of birds attacking, yeah, yeah, and I think that I I just you know that's that's I really do enjoy that movie, yeah, a lot. Yeah, I actually yeah. almost chose that in place of Night of the Living Dead. I was kind of torn between those two. And it has a, what? Oh, the actress playing the the um the young uh, sister. 
mm-hmm. I can't remember her name, but she was she would grow up to be in uh, Alien and the remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm. Nice. I can't remember what her name is now, but um. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, anyway, people yeah. should definitely check out the birds if they like the siege narrative. But I will say, it is it feels a little bit like a slow burn. I watched it within the last couple of years, and it's it's a little bit slower paced, right? Well, I mean, I don't think so. I still I still enjoy it. I mean, it's it's I, I think he's building to something in the movie, and I think uh, I think he does it pretty well. I think he he gives you um, uh, just enough to. To, to, to keep it going and then once it gets to the very end you know i didn't i mean i don't consider it a slow burn okay. i mean maybe i've seen it a lot i don't know but yeah i i enjoy it awesome yeah so check out the birds everybody and then um before we close out the show this is truly the last thing here um we did get a an awesome itunes review and uh it was kind of hilarious actually and i've said it before i'll say it again if you like this podcast the very best way you can support us is to write an iTunes review for horror movie podcasts. So this review comes from SN3AK3RN3T. That's the name. And I actually tried to oh, use... Oh, I was wondering when he was going to swing by. Yeah. See, I was actually going to try to use that as my horror podcasting moniker instead of Jay of the Dead. But this person had already taken it. So <laughs> thanks a lot. But anyway, here's the iTunes review. It's... The title is Best Horror Movie Podcast, Hands Down, Five Stars, and it says, I will admit, when I first saw the name of the podcast and the image, I was thinking, wow, this is going to be horrible. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? I've tried to tell him. (laughs) Well, I I just want to address that because Wolfman just said that. See, we've got a, a mission it's a statement. It's a message. We're all business, right? No? <laughs> Josh is like, no. I think I think we could f- flash it up a little bit, but I, I do like I do I do like the name actually. I like just putting it out there like this is the horror movie podcast. I like <laughs> yeah, that. I think but I, I, but I, I you know I Jason and I have grappled with some of the graphic design elements on this <laughs> movie podcast weekly in the past. And That's true. And, and he's not budging, folks. He's not budging. And you can draw amazing artwork and it's never going to be seen. <laughs> and everything. I mean, we grapple on everything, really, when it comes down to it. But, um, you know, I feel like that green that we have, that's like horror movie podcast green. When I see that, like that belongs to our show. And when I see yeah, that, you know that, that, you know, that son of Frankenstein poster that you posted on the last episode, I, I wish the word horror was kind of written in that, just that classic gooey, you know, Frankenstein kind of, kind of, that would be my only change to your very clean and I see what you're saying. design element, but Okay, I'm with you. Well, to con- he's, he's sticking with it. Don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to con- continue on this comment. He says, after saying, wow, this is going to be horrible, which I love. I think that's hilarious. He says, but I was so wrong. This is hands down the best horror movie podcast I have ever listened to. The varying views on movies, debates, and the rent it or own combined with the one to 10 scoring is genius. Thanks to everyone on the podcast for introducing me to movies I would have otherwise never heard of. FYI, this is my first time ever reviewing a podcast. So, I really wow. want to thank SN3AK3M 
uh, 3T for that yeah. review. That was job. awesome. Thank you. That was excellent. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was seriously really nice. So absolutely. Anyway, we, um, we're going to wrap up episode 19 of horror movie podcast. We hope you guys had a good time out there. We thank you for listening and we hope that you'll join us again in two weeks for another awesome episode. Whose turn is it next to do a themed episode? I think it's me. I think it might yeah, be, yeah. Nice. I think I chose, did I choose Haunted Houses at the beginning? Yeah, so. Yes, you did. That's right. So yep. it's, it's come back around again. So do you know what you want to do next just to tease the listeners? Oh, I don't know. I, what I really want to do, it's probably too soon for. Um, we, you know, we did Feral Vampires um, on on that one episode, the Animalistic Vampires. I, I, I'm a big fan of the humanistic humanoid vampires so that's we want to call it but that's something classic vampires i guess is what i would call i I would like to go down that road but we might we might want to wait a little while you can pick whatever you want you guys didn't you didn't veto my um you know siege narrative so whatever you want teasing doing uh giallos for quite a while um i was thinking maybe a proto slasher episode and and featuring some giallos might be a nice a nice Mm, change of pace but yeah We'll uh, we'll let you know when when we decide. Okay, cool. That sounds great. And by the way, listeners, we we do love your comments. Um, I, I know a lot of people are involved already, but you know, feel free to get involved in our horror movie podcast community. You can leave a comment in the show notes at the bottom of this episode or any episode for that matter, or you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail You could even call and leave a voicemail at 801-382-8789. And um, you can find all our back episodes at horrormoviepodcast.com as well as our archive for Horror Metropolis and the weekly Horror Movie Podcast. We are free in iTunes, so please subscribe. And you can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. And I do want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for our theme song, you can find Fred's music at frederickingram.com. It'll be linked in the show notes. And so I want to turn it over to my co-host now. See if you have any final plugs. Uh, what do you have, Wolfman Josh? Well, just in the way of terms of arguing about graphic design, um, there is a artist named Alex Pardee who's a friend of a friend. He does all the artwork for the band they used. Um and he did one of the most amazing movie posters I've seen in recent years for Willow Creek. And you didn't even use that poster on the website. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for this episode what, you're going to choose the Alex Pardee artwork. I, I actually are, – are you talking about the red and black one that's like the footprint? No, that's the, that's the one that you have. That one's cool too. But, I mean, the Alex Pardee one's insanely – I mean, it's one of the coolest posters I've seen in years. Okay. I well, I promise you I will use that poster. Okay. Just for you. That's all I have. <laughs> Vote for us for the uh, podcast, the Pod Body Podcast Awards. I'm assuming, Jason, you're going to post a link. Um, yeah. I think that's awesome. Can, can they uh, vote? I was looking at it. I thought it was being voted on by 12 anonymous uh, podcasts. Well, for the best you, podcast that, that they can vote, but it uh, doesn't open until like June 29th, I think. Oh, okay. 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 So I'll make sure to get that out. Yeah, we would, we would actually, you know... We would love to win that and sure. and, and, la- and laugh at our uh, co-hosts over on Movie Podcast Weekly. Well, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I just assumed Movie Podcast Weekly win as well. Sorry, Doc, but uh, <laughs> I know. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say the same thing over there. So because I have an alter Was ego. Doc nominated as a podcast legend. 
He should he, be. He deserves to be. That's what I, I think. Take myself too. out of contention, but I, I think I don't even, should definitely. Be. I I don't know. Did I was I nominated? For, I didn't see my name on there. Uh, sure. Do you mean Jay, look? Jason here was and, and Andy. I know Howell Jason was of all and people. I know Andy was. Yes, <laughs> Andy was too. So that's yep. funny. Um, I love Andy. Anyway, I think that's very cool. So thanks, you know, out there. We we assume yeah, absolutely since you know about us. So that's absolutely. very cool. Thanks for nominating us, and um, you know, uh, get in touch with us on Twitter. Um, horror movie cast and uh i'm at icarus arts dave's on there too so dave right dvd infatuation dvd infatuation correct all one word Mm -hmm. so get in touch with all of us on there it'll be fun and we'll we'll have some nice interaction going all right thank you and what do you have dr shock well uh josh named one of them right there dvd infatuation on twitter but also check out the blog and DVDinfatuation.com, still putting up a movie a day. Um, and, you know, do come out to the forums because it's, it, it really does, it, it's an extension of the show, uh, you know, and, and I think what I really like is, is the, the people in the community who recommend movies and then we'll sit there and we'll, we'll have discussions about those. I mean, it, it does take the show to another level, what mm-hmm. we discuss here. Uh, and, and then they'll come in and say, Hey, we got these movies, these movies and so forth. Uh, and it's really fascinating and, and just some really, um, intelligent, uh, well-spoken, uh, listeners over there that, that are given their recommendations. And uh, I think, you know, if, if you like the show, I think you should really check out the forum as well, because it, it, you'll, you'll get even more recommendations along the same lines. Yeah, and I'm not being falsely modest. Um, I actually think that they, the people who comment, they say like better things than we do. No, I, I, there are times I, I definitely agree. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they they put a they put a lot in them. Some of those comments, you know, like, I enjoy reading everybody's comments. You know, that they're all very valuable, and and we thank you. And I like to see a new name pop up there every now and again too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's awesome to hear from them for sure. <laughs> anyway, as for my plugs, I just encourage people to check out moviepodcastweekly.com. I'm on there with uh, Wolfman Josh, and we fight every single week. So <laughs> check us out, moviepodcastweekly.com. I think that's it for episode 19. We thank you for listening, and you can join us again in two weeks for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. eyewitness accounts of this grisly development came from people who were understandably frightened and almost incoherent. Officials and newsmen at first discounted those eyewitness descriptions as being beyond belief. I think we have some late word of just arriving and I'll interrupt to bring this to you. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. It's hard for us here to believe what we're reporting to you, but it does seem to be a fact.